If there's one thing we love just as much or more than Stephen King around these parts, it is practical makeup effects, so it is my absolute pleasure to tell you guys about this program developed by the legendary Tom Savini himself, provided by Douglas Education Center. Become a practical effects artist in Tom Savini's special makeup effects program. This 16-month associate degree program teaches you every aspect of special makeup effects. Everything from design, anatomy, sculpting, and mold making, to casting, painting, finishing, creating eyes and teeth, and computer sculpting and ZBrush. Graduates work as professional effects artists in effects shops, television, film, medical prosthetics, haunted attractions, and theater. That's right, you can actually get a degree in practical effects. How badass is that? To learn more about Tom Savini's special makeup effects program, visit dec.edu. And by the way, if you're listening to this, you are listening to a surprise drop episode. We're, we're dropping this the, uh, the day before Christmas Eve. What this is is a commentary track that ran on our Patreon not too long ago. A feature-length commentary track for the Doctor Sleep Director's Cut, featuring writer-director Mike Flanagan as the guest. We dropped this on our Patreon not long ago, but we wanted to share it with the rest of the audience, basically. And because it's Christmas, we thought we'd, we'd give you that gift. And also, maybe, yes, use this as an opportunity to point out that this is the kind of shit that we are doing over on our Patreon. In fact, tomorrow... We've got another commentary track with Mike Flanagan. Mm -hmm. uh, he came on to do a commentary for Gerald's Game with Carla Gugino. So we have the writer and the star of that movie tomorrow on the Patreon. Just be aware that this is the kind of thing we're doing over there. We, we want you guys to, to join the, the KingCast Quartet by going over to patreon.com backslash the KingCast and getting signed up. You'll want to get in on the $10 tier. That'll give you access to all of these commentary tracks. There's a new one every month. And the rest of the month is bonus episodes. You sign up now, you're going to get access to dozens upon dozens of hours of content in the form of bonus episodes, commentaries, mailbag episodes where we're taking questions from the audience. We've got a ton of shit going on over there. If you're only listening to the KingCast through the main feed, you're only getting like half the show. So head on over there and sign up if you like what you hear here today. That's Absolutely. Here twice in a row. You did. That's multiple here's. Here, yeah. here, I say to that. And I'd like to point out if you've never listened to one of our commentary tracks before, uh, we do a little bit of uh, bullshitting with our people who come in and join us for him at, at the top. And then we do a countdown where we sync up everything. So mm -hmm. if you start it, you don't need to start the movie right away, right as the, the file starts. You just need to. To listen to us talk, and we'll give you the countdown on when you need to press play. So keep Correct. that in mind as you go forward. So enjoy. I hope you guys love it as much as we do. And uh, there's lots of really great stuff in there. There's uh, he point. I will say heads up without spoiling. Flanagan points out a dark tower uh, connection that nobody has ever pointed out in to, to right. my knowledge in this thing. And you're gonna <clears throat> like your mind's gonna be blown whenever you actually hear what it is. It's been staring you in the face this whole time. Merry Christmas, everyone. Happy holidays. Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Bad rum! Well, sometimes that is better. Well, hi there, and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Eric Vespi. And I'm Scott Wampler. And we are your hosts. 
Today we have a very special bonus episode for you, and that is a feature-length commentary for the director's cut of Dr. Sleep with none other than Mr. Mike Flanagan. He doesn't need an introduction, especially since he's appeared on the show at least 47 times now by my Mm -hmm. last count. So let's cut to the chase and welcome Mike back to the KingCast for a little chat before we start the commentary proper. Welcome back, Mike. Hello, hello. I'm so happy to be back. Thank you guys oh, for Oh, yeah. We're delighted to have you. So happy to, to, to have you here. And before we, we'll, we'll do a countdown here in a second where we'll sync up the commentary track. But before we actually start the commentary, I wanted to ask, Mike, what's new with you? How are you doing? Are you still basking in all that midnight mass glow? That, all that <laughs> love that, that poured off of that thing? Oh, uh, yeah. You know, I, I'm, uh, I'm still up in Vancouver for year, you know, 25 since the lockdown. Um, <laughs> And prepping the new show, uh, we're all still kind of, you know, combing through all the opinion pieces and and everything on Midnight Mass and, and loving that it's resonating with people uh, and just wishing more people had seen it. it it's It's got a, a bit of a doctor sleep issue, that show. Oh, really? What? Yeah. Really? Yeah. It seems like it blew the hell up. Like, it was all anyone was talking about on my feed for several weeks there. I was I was surprised too. I thought I thought it had, it had landed a little louder, but it it uh, Netflix you know very helpfully called up to tell us uh, that it, it wasn't on the haunting level uh, for performance. <laughs> it was like oh thanks. Well we'll uh, we'll do it again. Good talk everybody, yeah. Um, but uh, but it it did just fine. But we we are still definitely enjoying that and really grateful that that it's connected with the people it's connected with, and it's it's still my favorite thing. That one that's still my favorite one. Well, I, I suppose one cool thing is uh, you didn't have to put it in a theater. You don't got to worry about box office and it'll live on Netflix until, you know, someone takes their servers offline. Um, yeah. And yep. until be Skynet discovered. becomes sentient and yeah. Uh, yeah. Dr- drops an EMP on us. But yeah. People are going to be discovering that thing for a long time. And it's uh, it, se- it seems like it would be evergreen, I guess is what I'm saying. Obviously, it's modern looking, but there's nothing about it that. I feel like it's not like a it's not like uh you said it during covid times or right. you know uh, there's there's any particular element to it that's um of a time and place you know you could watch that 4 or 5 years from now and I think it would work just as well. We hope so. And and it's you know we, we I'm, I'm at the point with that project where I can never watch these things when they come out. It's a weird thing. In fact, today will be the first time I've watched Doctor Sleep since before it was released. I was going to uh, before it was released. Really? Oh no! I, I guess I saw the theatrical at the premiere, so that—that's yeah. the last time I saw it. Wow! Um, but uh, but yeah, it. I, I I have to put them aside when they come out because it, it gets really uncomfortable, kind of living and dying by all the reactions to them, mm-hmm. and you really want to just see what happens to them as they grow up and develop their own lives, and and um, you send them off to school. So, like Midnight Mass is at that point now where we're all actively starting to distance ourselves from it, and we'll come back to it in a couple of years and mm-hmm. get to get to kind of hopefully experience it. Cause we, that's the one thing we never get to do if we work right. on it. So, well, if um, you like this yeah. process, then, you know, maybe in a couple of years we'll do commentaries for each episode of midnight mass. Oh, that'd be a blast. <laughs> Cause I know, I know Netflix won't, I don't know why, I don't know why everybody's, <laughs> everybody's so against commentaries uh, these days. So I'm, I'm thrilled you guys are keeping it alive. It's awesome. It seems like the easiest thing that they could just the, add the another audio track. Yeah. Right, yeah. Piece of cake. And it would encourage, you know, rewatches. It would, they, they've got like 140 different audio tracks on, on these things anyway. Do they give you a reason why not? Like, they just, they kind of shrug and then look past you. 
um, like, like something mm-hmm. interesting is happening over your shoulder. Like it's, it's just like, <laughs> like, what about, what about a commentary some... track? Be a piece of cake. I can, I can lay it all down. You don't have to pay a penny or lift a finger. And there you're like, uh-huh. And they just kind of drift. And then the mm-hmm. conversation just dies. It's really weird. Some people just don't give a shit about commentary tracks is the truth. Yeah. You know, I know, well, I know it, people it, that are film fans that never watch them. Yeah, It's definitely a niche thing, but it's also something that, I don't know. It's part of the, the, the legend of the, I don't know, the magic of the movies, right? This is the peak behind the curtain time and, and it gets to be honest. And uh, I don't know, as uh, maybe it's just my bias. Cause I love commentary tracks and I have since uh, the only way you can get them was off of like laser disc and I never had a laser disc player. So, so it wasn't really until DVDs that I, you know, really got to do that. They're like little film schools, you know, almost, yeah, it's history. Know. It's history yeah. for the production. Yeah, okay. I, I would learn all about them in film school. Like I, I would yeah. chase them down and 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 devour them. And the weirdest thing, even with this movie, you know, with Warner Brothers was really going all out on the special features. Right. They were incredibly generous with the director's cut by letting us finish the visual effects and do a full mix for it and like really present it. And and they were the same way. And I was like, and a commentary track, and they were like, nah. Hmm. <laughs> it's like you guys are, are spending so much. Well, to, I know, to like, do the rest of it. Why not? And I know, like yeah. Ryan Johnson records his own like commentary tracks for his stuff to actually be listened to. Like uh, he'll release the audio, so you can go like watch Knives Out, you know, and sit and like put yeah. plug in your earpods or whatever, and and like watch the commentary in the theater, which I think is a pretty rad thing to do. But uh, yeah, but yeah, no, I don't get it. We are doing our best to to uh, change the world one step at a time, <laughs> one commentary at a time. Usually our commentary tracks are just a bunch of us uh, nerds getting together going, yeah, I like Stand By Me. You like Stand By Me? I like Stand By Me. Um, and uh, having random conversations about it. But we just recorded one with Vincenzo Natale for In the Tall Grass, another Netflix mm-hmm. uh, uh, thing that we were discussing. And, um, uh, you know, he never got to do a, a commentary officially. So he's he has to come to people like us. To yeah. do that, so That's well, awesome we can't. That, That's to be awesome. clear, we we went to him, but he was delighted to do it, and that was just a couple days ago we recorded that. So we're doing two filmmaker commentaries with their films back to back, basically. And um, no pressure, Mike. I'm well. I'm just, I'm delighted by it. Like we had talked about doing that before, but had never quite gotten around to it. And then this right. sort of all came together very quickly. But I'd really like to do more of those. I think there's absolutely more value in this than us doing comment like a. A, a dream catcher commentary you know what i'm saying <laughs> like Although as funny listen, as that i would listen to the dream catcher commentary we'll, like, we'll send you the audio oh, yeah we'll send you it. it's it's yeah. very funny i don't yeah. mind saying um <laughs> it's the it's possibly the most entertained you'll ever be watching dream catcher but um i'm not sure how much real value there is beyond no it's just funny you know which yeah, is fine enough would. for me you know that's kind of my thing but like it definitely it's, wasn't scholarly. It wasn't us going, no. you know. And then on page 47 of King's original text, he uses this phrase and this phrase. Like we, we're not that level. We're like uh, the Eberts, you know, who show up and go like frame by frame on Citizen Kane. Yeah. Not quite at that stature yet, but, uh, you know, we're not going for it. So depends on the guest. So, <laughs> you know, balls in your court, Mike. Better oh, be good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You got so three I, hours to make it. Three good. So I hours. Think, I think we yeah. can make this work. Yeah. Yes. Um, all right. So everybody at home, uh, get your file ready. Uh, I'm running off of the 4K uh, Blu-ray, which uh, unfortunately they only put the the regular blue, the director's cut on a regular Blu-ray. But 
I'll take it. Um, so I'm I'm set up at zero minutes and zero zero seconds. That should be right when the Warner's shield is coming up. So, mm-hmm. yep. So if everybody's ready, and make sure it's the director's cut, or else we're you're going to be real confused real fast. Um, <laughs> uh, but if you guys are ready, we'll do a countdown and we'll go three, two, one, go. And on go, we will hit play. And that's for you guys listening along as well. So is everybody ready? Yeah. Ready. All right. I'll start the countdown. Three, two. One, go. All right. And done, we're done. It. That was great. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. yeah. So, Mike, I think right off the bat here, what I'd like to do is, is get your relationship to the Kubrick film and the um, King novel. Mm, uh, sure. Because one thing that, you know, I think all Stephen King fans can can give you credit for here, especially with this this film, is how you marry uh, the legacies of both. And uh, maybe that's a good place to start. Sure. Well, you know, the the Kubrick film was formative for me growing up. I I saw it when I was too young to see it. And it burned, it tattooed itself into my brain. And um, and yeah, I I think it's a masterpiece of of horror cinema. I had seen the movie probably five or six times before I ever read the book. And uh, when I read the book, I was shocked by how different they were. And Mm. then, then I finally kind of stumbled upon the reality of, you know, what, what King thought about the adaptation. And that was so weird to me to like, it was like mommy and daddy were fighting. It it was, (laughs) it was like, it it was tough to reconcile. Um, But I loved them both for very different reasons. And Dr. Sleep, when it was published, I was real excited about, um, and I read it and it was like, wow, he just, he really kind of torched the bridge behind him as far as Kubrick uh, goes. And the whole crux of my pitch for this was, was just trying to fold them back together. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so this, this actually, if you pan left here, uh, you would see the casino boat from Ozark parked. (laughs) No shit. (laughs) On the shores. Yeah. We we were shooting in, in Atlanta and um, Ozark had shot down there and their casino boat set was just, just out of frame over there. (laughs) <laughs> um, but, uh, there's Violet McGraw from haunting and of course the incomparable Rebecca Ferguson. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so this all kind of happened because I took a meeting at Warner brothers to talk about DC comics and to see if, if there was a fit in the DC world. And I was talking to John Berg, um, and it didn't look like there was much of a fit in DC. Cause I, you know, the DC one I always want to do is Clayface, and they're always kind of like, yeah, uh, <laughs> but the, uh, the, um, the meeting kind of petered out and I had finished Gerald's game and he was a big King fan and he was asking questions about it. And, and he said, did you ever read, you know, we have the, we have Dr. Sleep here. We've been trying to crack it for a couple of years. Did you ever read it? And I, I had, and I said, yeah, I, I actually re- tried to get a meeting on it multiple times and I could never get in the room. Mm. And he was like, well, well, you're in the room. What would you do? Um, and I said, well, you know, the thing I miss about Dr. Sleep is I, I just feel like I miss the overlook. And I feel like the, you know, Dan's phenomenal. Rose the Hat's terrific. Abra's awesome. What if that big final fight just happened in the hotel and it was condemned? And he was like, but, you know, how would you, how would you ever sell, uh, sell King on that? I don't know. It's worth a try. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> we'll figure it out. Yeah. He loves The Shining. 
And he, <laughs> I, I left the office and I called my producing partner, Trevor Macy. And I said, you know, had a, had a good meeting. I uh, don't think they're interested in Clayface. And, you know, they brought up Dr. Sleep, but I, you know, nothing will ever happen there. And by the time I'd made it to the car, he had already called Stephen King. And said, hey, Flanagan was just in, I know you did Gerald's game with him. What do you think? And, and King was like, yeah, that was good. Um, huh. we, should, we should talk about that. And uh, so I worked up my little pitch. And um, oh, there's a, I, I'm skipping over all the stuff. <laughs> there's, yeah, uh, the true, I can talk about the true knot all day long. But the true knot is sure. just full of interesting people um, from, from other, other Flanagan projects and then just weird stuff. I, I'll, I'll wait till they come back on screen. But, um, but yeah, and what did it was uh, we, we went to King and said we would do as straight an adaptation as possible, um, but we'd want to bring back specifically Kubrick's Overlook um, for quick little bits at the beginning, like the flashbacks like we're about to do, mm. and, uh, and for the ending confrontation. And he didn't, didn't seem interested. And uh, I pitched the bar scene, um, mm. and that's what did it. Interesting, yeah. Um, to, to really show, and we'll get get to that one once uh, we get to that part of the movie. But yeah, it is a very interesting uh, duality there because Danny spends most of this movie trying to avoid the mistakes of his father, yeah. right? And it and all comes to a head with that scene. So I can understand why why. Uh, uh, King would like his ears would perk up on on that that mention. Um, here's a here's my favorite set I've ever I've ever gotten to build. Oh, um, and I'm so pissed off that I didn't know you <laughs> like <laughs> like I do now when this, this happened because I had friends that went to go visit this and and they were talking about how amazing yeah, I remember that. the Overlook set was. It was stunning. It, it was the it was like walking into your memories. Like it was it was incredible to be in there. We all took turns. We had a, a grown up size uh, trike that the grips had made <laughs> of course. and we all took turns riding around um, <laughs> and uh, it, we, we filmed, I have video on my phone of like Ewan riding around and Rebecca riding around and um, Mario carting through the halls of the open. Yeah. <laughs> and we were giggle like kids. We stayed two hours after rap the first night, just riding in circles and taking turns and like chasing each other with our phones. And, and like, it was, it was surreal to be in there. Um, the funny things about that set are it's it's just the tiniest bit smaller than Kubrick's because his stages were bigger than ours. That's we the fit it. That's the first conversation you and I ever had. I don't know if you remember that. I do remember that. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, you reached out because you spotted it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I well, uh, my thing was it looks it looks right, but there's something slightly off about. It. I couldn't, and I could. My theory was that you had the 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 height at which you were holding the camera was slightly different than Kubrick's. And you, I, well, you were about to explain what you explained to me then, I think. Oh, about it, the fire it, codes. Yep, yep. Um, he would build into the fire lanes. And, you know, and that, <laughs> that, that worked out great, if you've ever heard of the famous fire on the set of The Shining. But, <laughs> yeah. but um, you know, we, we didn't. And um, so everything had to squeeze in just a little bit. And so we, rather than kind of, uh, shrink everything we we would just you know proportionally dial down certain elements of the set to make it fit um oh this is all stuff they they that we took out of the theatrical with miss massey um getting mm. up um she walked around and that's a suit that bob kurtzman made um mm. it's like a scuba suit and she had no sense of nudity in it because you know she was completely not naked 
Right. So she would walk around set at crafty and stuff and <laughs> um, just look like that. And, and she had a robe, but it would always fall open and she couldn't feel it because there's no breeze or draft to let her know that the right. robe was open. So you'd be sitting on a chair and she'd come up behind you like, like crotch, like at your head level and <laughs> ask you a question and you turn around and it's just this like rotten <laughs> like bush in front of you. It was so crazy. Um, <laughs> She's the sweetest lady, Sally. She was, she was so sweet. And whenever she was on set, like we were like, this this little boy is going to have quite an education that could scar <laughs> him for life about what he thinks the human body looks like. <laughs> so we, we have to like figure out how to how to navigate that. Um, uh, Alex Esso, this is my first time working with Alex, um, mm. who like channels Shelley Duvall. It's yeah. wild. It's yeah. wild yeah. what she does in this. Yeah, there's a shot coming up where she's running across the street to Danny, and I'm like, and instantly I just recognized the 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 kind of I don't know, like Fleischer cartoon esque like flapping arms that that Shelley Duvall has when she runs. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, it, it it but it's it's weird. It's like the essence of, and that's something that you you do here. I I assume that there must have been a conversation at some point of like. Do we do digital versions of these actors, of these original characters uh, that we know, or do we recast? And once the decision to recast one, I assume that means you can't just then have yeah. a CGI Jack Nicholson that shows up at the end. You need to have that continuity. Correct. And, and that, that conversation happened about 600 times. Um, <laughs> I bet. And it, it was, uh, and, and it, your rationale is exactly what we fell back on, was whatever we do for one of them, we have to do for all of them. And my feeling was that the uncanny valley of the digital doubles would rip me out of the movie because I'd spent mm. so much time scrutinizing the tech. Right. Um, and that I, I'd never really seen it come off yet anyway, in a way that doesn't call at least some attention to itself. Right. So we figured... Yeah, if Scorsese couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. And it's, but now you see, you know, someone on does a deep fake and drops it on TikTok, And it's like, Oh shit, that looks amazing. <laughs> like, yeah. why, why couldn't we do that? But the next generation. Yeah. It, it, um, you know, it, the idea was we'd, we'd cast in the same way that the overlook was mostly right. It was like, we'd, we'd, we'd try to cast people who reminded us of how we remembered the characters and, and go from there. Um, right. And uh, we, you know, I think it's easy to second guess it, but I I still believe it would have felt like a video game, especially this stretch where you would have had Alex and you would have had, you know, Danny, you would have had Dick Halloran kind of all as these digital avatars. I think it would have been really distracting and weird. Right. (laughs) Ridiculous. Yeah. (laughs) Although Um, I do, I do like a a part of me does. Yeah. A part of me does want to see Scatman Crothers sitting here. just in broad daylight still wearing his, his like late seventies, early eighties. Well, one thing that really impressed me about this the the first time I saw it, and still does really, is that thing, you know, uh, Vespa, you mentioned a minute ago about the, they, they're just nailing the essence of each character. And so you very quickly stop giving a shit about the fact that they don't look exactly like, you know, Scatman or, um, or Shelly or Jack or Danny, you know, you, they're capturing, they're doing it, you know, it's, um, Far less distracting than it would have been to use CGI folks. Well, and um, I think it works. enjoy a performance too, instead right. of yeah. seeing like, like, cause Carl Lumley is doing really good work here. 
Yeah. And if, if we had covered him up with some digital Statman mask, like it would have cost us this lovely performance of his interpretation of the character. Right. And, sure. You know, it, this was the first thing we shot actually for the whole movie. This is day one, scene one. And that storm cloud coming in behind him is real. We were racing <laughs> it. it. It ended up kind of calling us. <laughs> we ended up having to wrap because um, that's rolling in and it just looks beautiful against him. Um mm-hmm. But that, this is when we knew the movie would work, uh, at least insofar as it ever would. It, it all—it was like we're starting with you know Dick Halloran and Danny Torrance, and if this didn't work, we were fucked. Right. So yeah. uh, it was a joy on the day to watch Carl work and be like, "Yeah, we're fine." Right, but, and I—I I have to also point out that you know this is a, a change from the book because in the original novel, the Halloran doesn't die at the end of The Shining. Yeah, and so he's alive at the beginning of Doctor Sleep in the the book. Um, but what I, what, lo- what I love about this choice isn't just like, Oh, of course you can do the shining ghosty thing. Danny's haunted by the bad ghost. Why wouldn't he be able to see a good ghost? You know, a friendly, yeah. a friendly ghost and communicate with somebody who had the shine. Uh, but it's beyond that because it's setting up this, the whole circular storytelling nature of this movie, right? Where it is, he is the mentor and he is saying it's, you know, at some point you're going to be, you know, have to look after somebody the way I looked after you and the way my grandma looked after me. Yep. Um, Ka is a wheel. Yep. Ka is a wheel. I was going to um, save that for that, that moment, but, uh, <laughs> well, no, but, but it's, it's all over this. It, it's, um, and that, that cyclical, you know, kind of ebb and flow and that it all comes around again, you know, it's, it's in the book too. He, you know, King has, uh, Halloran talk about the cyclical nature of it. He never says Ka is a wheel in the book, but I don't, we were like, why, why wouldn't he? Um, so <laughs> the, uh, you know, this scene, I, I very much love for how it echoes later when, you know, when Dan and, and Halloran are reunited and mm. then how it plays for the ending. Um, I, I also, uh, no, I also real, real, sorry, real quick. I also noticed that the, this scene is framed very much like how you frame uh, Ewan and, and um, uh, uh, Kylie. Oh, um, it's it even better. Well. That's it's literally also... the same bench. No shit. Yep. Really? We, we moved the bench. Uh, we, we, we took it with us and um, they're sitting, Ewan and Kylie are on the exact same bench. It's just in a different place. That's crazy. I was going to say the shot from them earlier from behind, it r- reminds me of the shot in, <clears throat> isn't, isn't it Gerald's game? You know, in the, yeah. when they're yeah, when they're yeah. you know watching uh, the eclipse, a, a much less pleasant scene. You're right, <laughs> with um, an adult and a child. Yes, but for sure, Mike Flanagan he loves a shot of some people on a bench near a body of water. It's yeah, the yeah. Forrest Gump influence. I, I'm going to assume most mm. definitely. Um, <laughs> the uh, it, it, and the shot list for this scene and the the Dan Abra Park scene is basically an identical shot list. You're completely correct. Um, no, and, and you there's, there's the run. Look no, here it is. Yeah. And just the way she calls out for Danny too is just Danny. Like, yeah. yeah, it's it's perfect. Um now I I noticed something a little earlier maybe I'm totally off on this but did you also mirror Danny's childhood bedroom to uh Abra's? Yes. Because, yes we did. Okay, good. I thought I was I was going crazy but like uh Abra's has way more uh shit on her wall. But I was like it seemed like the exact same positioning of the bed and there's a window on the right side and and everything. Yeah. Talk, uh, can you talk a little bit about um, the set design here? Like what um, what yeah, sort of thought went into Wendy Torrance's domicile? 
Well, we, we talked a lot about where she was kind of after the overlook and, uh-huh. you know, the book gives us a lot about Florida. Like it spends a little more time in, in their Floridian lives. And so we wanted something that had kind of the, the color palette we'd expect from a bit of a cheesy kind of lower end Floridian right. uh, spot. But we also wanted a long hallway where we could do some symmetrical Kubrickian touches in our framing um, like this. Uh, and we wanted to kind of try to keep that rigid geometry that he had mm-hmm. baked into uh, the overlook so that there was always just a little sprinkle of it, even though they moved as far away from the snowy, you know, Rockies as they could, that they're still, still kind of feeling it. And we built that on stage. Um, that set existed on our soundstage right next to room 237. Right. And, um, yeah. Well, I'd I'd love, I'd love for you to explore a little bit more of like the, because this is filmed very much with, uh, the shining kind of transitions that, that we just saw flashes of the, the box opening, which reminds me a whole lot of Danny's like uh, flashes of the overlook in, in the shining. Um, and I also noticed you use like some dissolves and things like like what's happening right now, uh, which is how, how uh, Kubrick handled the transitions in, in the movie. Like how, how, how much was that on the forefront of your mind to say like, listen, if we're going to make this, it has to stylistically connect to the Kubrick movie. Uh, very much. The, the idea was that we would use as many of the Kubrickian aesthetic as we could without making it feel like we were stealing um, that, that mm-hmm. this movie should feel like it's in the same universe as, as the original but play with the color palette and bring in some more modern elements kind of as, as we got into this story, as we got into Dan, um, but right. to always be using his language. And um, it's fun because there are a couple of times where we got to use, we got to kind of put in some things that I like to think are, are more mine. Um, but it was very tentative and kind of, uh, kind of, kind of nervously that we would do that. It, it was always mm-hmm. like, you know, we, we really wanted this to, to feel like a shining story, um, in so much as we could get away with it. Um, but without ever what a tightrope to have away. to have to walk. Oh, it was brutal. It was brutal. Um, and a lot of second guessing a lot. Yeah, of, I can um, imagine a lot of late night conversations where we'd, we'd pull the room sometimes and be like, is this too much? Is it not enough? Is it, you know, going to feel like theft or is it going to feel like reverence? Like we don't, we don't know. And um, it was, it was a lot. It was, it was a, for about two years, it felt like walking on a, on a high wire. <laughs> um, and it was like, at a certain point, it was like, just don't look down, just make the movie and right. get the hell out of there. Um, yeah, I noticed in that bar fight scene, uh, by the way, that he, he says one of his father's lines, take your medicine. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one of the other things that was important to me was that if we were going to be making changes and, and of course we were that I wanted to be drawing from, um, from the shining novel and try to right. grab things that, that didn't quite make it into the Kubrick. Huh. Um, and that was <laughs> the ending. <laughs> including the entire ending, right? Which was another part of the hard pitch to Steve was, um, I was like, "You'll no, finally get your your boiler." Yeah. Well, but it was like we're going to completely change the ending of of Doctor Sleep, which I know is likely to upset you. Um, but the good news is we're going to change it <laughs> to the ending of The Shining, and you're going to get you're going to get everything you wanted. 
Uh, and he really liked that. Um, and, and we, Trevor and I had said to Warners that if King didn't like what we were doing creatively, we were going to, um, we were going to leave. We were going right. to just, we wouldn't go any further. So he, he blessed it and, and then did what he always does, which is he stayed away and, um, was like, good luck. I'll see it when it's done. And it's like, Oh Jesus, <laughs> <laughs> like this could, this, there's no safety net at all. Did but, you have any extensive conversations with him about Kubrick himself? Not at first. The first time I ever talked to Stephen King on the phone was when he watched the rough cut of Dr. Sleep. Mm. That was the first conversation we'd ever had. Everything mm -hmm. else was really? email. Yeah. Mm. Even through Gerald's game and everything else, I, I would go through his people. And then when Gerald's game was finished, he sent me the first email that, that I got from him. And we then were in touch that way. Uh, but I never spoke to him until he watched, watched the rough cut. Um, and then afterward, uh, when we brought the finished version of the film to Bangor and, and screened it with him in a theater, which was the coolest day of my life. Um, mm -hmm. And it was just us in the theater. I sat next to him and watched the movie. That's then, when he told you he was like a uh, little much on the baseball. On the boy, baseball boy. Yeah. yeah. He, he was like, that's a little too much for me. Um, <laughs> we, uh, and then he, he had us come to his house afterward for lunch and we stayed a couple hours and chatted. What did you eat for lunch at Stephen King's house? pizza <laughs> <laughs> perfect and yep. a pepsi probably right yep and he he got uh, uh hawaiian he got pineapple uh, Ooh, really yeah mm -hmm. this is some um, controversial territory we're headed into. <laughs> <laughs> um but uh we we sat and he we talked about kubrick then we we i got kind of the we finally had the conversation after the fact but leading up to it i everything i knew i knew from interviews that mm. he'd done did um, he did he have anything to say that was new to you? Not really. He's he's been amazingly consistent with his feelings about it over right. the years. Like the the things that surprised me were um, he did soften quite a bit after he saw this, and and one of the things he said multiple times was he was like, "This movie makes me it 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 warms me up on that movie." Interesting. And he's like, "It it, it makes it feel okay to me." Um, that's so and, fucking crazy. Like it was nuts <laughs> as yeah. a King fan, you know, not only are you like monkeying around in his backyard, you know, and adapting this book that was obviously very personal to him, but you're also changing the ending You're all you're, you're doing all these things. And then he quite famously does not like the original and tells you like, no, it's cool now. Because of what yeah. you did. <laughs> like, you made Kubrick all right to him for a minute. Like, what the fuck? My head would explode if I it were did. in your position. Oh, I, I, I'm sure I just, I pissed myself and just sat there, you know, making a dumb face. But he, he said, he was like, this, this redeems a lot of that for me. And I was like, fuck. Like, then this, it doesn't matter. And then I said to Trevor as we left, I was like, nothing from here out else matters. It doesn't matter if it bombs in the box office. Like, we did it. And then it bombed. And it was like, oh, well, fuck me. But the, um, yeah, you shouldn't it, have said it. I know it's like, God damn it. I got to keep my mouth shut. But, um, it, it was a, it was an incredible, incredible compliment and, and a relief on every level. And, um, I mean, I remember when we sent him the script to read because he had script approval and he hadn't had anything to do with, with, uh, with us while we were writing. And I sent the draft and he emailed back and he said, I'm halfway through the script and I love it so far. I absolutely love it. 
And I'm going to put it down now at the halfway point because uh, my son, Joe Hill, is getting married. I'm going to go do that. So I might not pick it up for a week, but I'll get back to you once I do. And that was the end of it. And I was like, fuck, like the second half <laughs> is the thing he's going to hate. Yeah. Like, and so there was another like eight days of total suspense waiting for him to finish it. But um, oh, this, uh, this is another one of those scenes that comes like right out of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, that I was so excited to do. And Casablanca's up there because it's my favorite movie. Uh, oh. Casablanca and Jaws Classic. are my two favorite films. Um, I think we're separated at birth. because. Of- <laughs> <laughs> oh, and- yeah, you too? Oh, yeah. Casablanca is the movie that got me into black and white movies. And uh, totally uh, it, it was it was one of the few movies where you watch it and just like it changed the way I viewed a whole era of filmmaking. Like I was able to get into black and white movies after watching this. Yep. After watching Casablanca and Jaws has been my favorite movie since I was like six. So Casablanca yep. is a movie that when I was before I got married, when I was dating, inevitably, I would end up showing uh, the woman I was dating Casablanca and just kind of see what happened. And it was like, it's a little bit of a test. Yeah. You know, like, like if you can't. Oh, here's this is our, uh, our green mile shot right there. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. If you can't, if you can't make it through Casablanca and appreciate it, then what's the point in pursuing any (laughs) any of this relationship? It's so just like incredibly romantic too. you know, just I think it's well, what can you say about Casablanca that hasn't already been said? We'll get you back, Mike, to do a commentary on Casablanca. Deal. <laughs> yeah. Later. Um, but yeah, so Emily uh, Lind, who plays Snakebite Andy, um, who I think is 17, I think, when she shot this, um, and is just phenomenal and fearless. Um, we were at this theater in Atlanta where we had done, on the same screen we did our, we kicked off the whole thing with a cast and crew screening of the 4K restoration of The Shining. Oh, wow. And that, we did that right before we went into production. And so we had all come there and, and gotten to, to watch it together. And that was when most of the cast met for the first time. Hmm. Um, and so we, we were also able to use it as a location and, uh, Warner brothers, you know, we're making the movie at Warner and they said, what do you want on the screen? And I was like, this is the only, only way in my life I'm ever going to be able to put Casablanca on a screen in a movie mm-hmm. without paying, you know, a small fortune. And Warner said, sure, here you go. Um, <laughs> here have a like, classic yeah it was like this is i really i was a kid in a candy store in this movie yeah. like i really you've just, technically directed humphrey bogart i hope you, hope you know <laughs> <laughs> i'm a big fan of uh zon zon is that how you say him? yeah zon mclarnan yeah awesome pro daddy he uh yep. he popped up in something i was watching not long ago and i was really excited i think it was uh reservation dogs yeah mm. yeah yeah that's yeah right. he's great what a just what well, there's a, a there's Joe present. Collins there in the um, in Dandelo. <laughs> uh, Joe Collins live comedy right over her shoulder there is our first no big shit tower. I uh, never yeah. I never saw that before. Yeah, perfect. Oh my yeah. god. Uh huh. <laughs> I've never I've never even heard that mentioned somewhere. Yeah, people don't catch all of them, and and we were really shooting the moon on it. It was it was like he's an emotional vampire in the Dark Tower universe, but he feeds on laughter. Mm-hmm. And so in this world, he should, of course, be a cousin of the true not, and he should have a stand-up show. <laughs> right. Perfect. Um, that is so that's, crazy. Yeah. Um, but no, yeah well, now I want to rewind it and see it, but we can't. Here's my <laughs> shot. So we talk about the Kubrick shots. Right. Every project that I've ever done has this 90-degree camera roll mm-hmm. right there. Um, and it's a, it's an in-joke between me and Michael Feminari. We've, we've done it since Oculus. 
it's like it's a challenge now to work it in to every project in a way that makes sense. <laughs> and uh, this is where we were able to squeeze it in on a really beautifully broken you in here. Um, mm-hmm. If you look up at the uh, the Tet Transit uh-huh. oh, sign up there, you'll see it's going to Jerusalem's lot about halfway down there. Um, <laughs> so, th- I mean, we we made things that were so small that they're almost impossible to see. <laughs> like you have to. You <laughs> I have hadn't to noticed. That. I didn't notice that one yeah. either. Enhance, yeah. enhance, enhance, um, enhance. <laughs> we were we were that just kind of giddy about every chance we had to do something and making the Tet Transit buses. Uh-huh. And having a whole fleet of them come into the set was just delightful. Um, I love it. Yeah. I love it. Uh, get, this might be a good spot since you're talking about broken uh, you in here of like casting your ideal adult Danny Torrance and somebody who can mm. yeah. sell both the the uh, clean and sober you know ver- guy and the broken guy uh, in a believable way. Oh yeah. When um, we had some neat actors who were, who were vying for this, I had the biggest actor meetings of my career right before this with Dan candidates and mm. like people I'm dying to work with. Like I, I sat with Chris Evans for it, who was wonderful. Holy shit. And um, Dan Stevens, who was also amazing. Oh, he's great. Yeah. Um, and uh, Ewan came in and he was like, you know, I, we're all, everyone's I'm sure talking about the shining. I want to talk about um, alcoholism and recovery. Mm-hmm. And at the time, Ewan, and I can talk about this pretty freely, I'm sure, because he, he's talked about it a bunch in press at this point, but Ewan was eight, eight years sober hmm. um, at the time of the meeting, and we just talked about that. And that's what made me think, this is the guy. Hmm. Um, and, you know, he, he had a, an appropriate amount of reverence for The Shining and everything else, but he was like, I'm really, all that aside, and the Kubrick of it, and the Nicholson of it, all that aside, um, I really, I'm, I'm connecting to Dan because he's also eight years sober and I feel like I know this character from beginning to end, from rock bottom to, to recovery. And that's what I want to play. And it was like, then you're, you're the guy, you're the right guy. Um, was there anyone that you were interested in working with on this who was unwilling to work on it be because of, you know, maybe misgivings or concern or what have you about treading on Kubrickian ground. Yeah. Uh, well, the, how are you going to handle Kubrick was a huge question everyone had in the casting. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, and we, we had a great answer, which was we've already talked to the Kubrick estate and we're working with them on this. We're not working against them on this. Uh, and I think we had, we never offered the part to them ultimately, but I had conversations with um, Anne Hathaway uh, about Rose to Hat hmm. uh, for a while, Nicole Kidman. Um, oh, wow. And we were kind of dancing around it and seeing if maybe that was a path to go down for either of them. And Anne, I remember, very much was concerned about the Kubrick of it. Right. Um, and uh, and then I've since heard that uh, they both loved the movie when it came out. But we, I, I, I can't imagine anyone but Rebecca Ferguson right. playing the part. Sure. So, I mean, it, Yo, they're went, definitely talented yeah. enough to do it, but like, <clears throat> you know, Rebecca owns it. Yeah. Like it really is. I can't, I like, it's to the point where, you know, re, if I reread the book, I would be picturing her, you know, now there, there isn't anybody else in my mind for, for this character after this. No, nah, she, she devoured it. And, um, 
Uh, this is a, one of the bigger changes that we had to pitch was removing the the uh, the relationship between Snakebite Andy and Rose to Hat that's in the book. Um, but mm -hmm. we wanted to just kind of nod at it. Um, since the the knot is ageless, they're all they're all you know constantly partner swapping, and mm -hmm. um, it kind of kicks off right away in the book. But we we didn't like that given that we had, we had aged Andy down. Uh, I think in the book she's in her twenties, and mm -hmm. we had we had a uh, we had aged her into a teens. So it was like we gotta we, we're not going to do that. Yeah, that so, slowly went in <laughs> suddenly went in the inappropriate territory, right? Yeah, um, but we we had kind of liked her as. Uh, as more of a kind of hard candy character mm. than, right. than the like 20, mid twenties kind of meth head that she is in the book. So we've already passed by this, but I want to loop back around to it real quick. If, if, if you spoke with Nicole Kidman about this role, those conversations must've been really interesting because she actually worked with Kubrick, you know, on his, on his final film. So she must've been oh, yeah. very protective. Um, and she uh, is a King fan to boot. No shit. Um, she had wanted to do Gerald's game for many years and was attached to it, uh, developing it for her to star in. And um, wow. long before I got there. Uh, and so, yeah, um, I didn't actually speak to her herself. It was all kind of through the representatives with her. But there were there were a lot of questions with her about Kubrick and how we were handling it and who specifically um, in his family was aware of it and, you know, what the conversations were and everything. But we, we had done all that above board. So um, interesting. But yeah, I mean, Ewan was concerned about it. Uh, kind of everybody, the first question with every cast member was, you know, they were like, oh, this is so exciting. I love this script. The second question was, how the hell are you going to do this? Does the Kubrick estate know what you're doing? And, or does Stephen King know what you're doing? Because <laughs> one of them is going to be furious. <laughs> and it was like, we're actually trying to, you know, we're trying to thread the needle. We, we think there's a way through this where they're both very happy. And they were like, tell us about that because how, how the fuck are you going to do that? And I you're also, and you also said, we're going to do uh 300 takes for each scene. <laughs> yep. Just, just to get it in the right, uh, the right Kubrickian mindset. It's going to be a three year shoot. <laughs> I think any, a, if I were yeah. you and I had had meetings with any people that didn't express some level of concern, I think that that would have been a red flag for me. Yeah. You know, like, how could you not? Like, it's it, it reminds me when we talked to Steven Weber about, um, uh, you know, we interviewed him about all his all the King stuff he had done. And we were talking about the TV miniseries at The Shining. And I asked him, you know, if he wasn't you know, intimidated to be stepping into Nicholson's shoes. And he's like, no, I was, you know, I was fine with it. And wow. I'm like, but surely you must have. <laughs> no, no, it was fine. And I'm like, but didn't you like, like how <laughs> the fuck do you not just be terrified of it? And, you know, at, at least showing concern shows that you have the, the respect that you should have for, you know, what came before. And so I, I think I, I think I would be thrown off by that if someone wasn't concerned. Yeah, it'd be like you're not. Uh, we tried to get uh, get Stephen Weber to do a cameo in this. Actually, no <laughs> um, shit. Yeah, he he wasn't available. Uh, but um, yeah, because I I think his his Jack performance is, you know, taking away nothing from Nicholson is is the you know the best adaptation of the uh, novelized character. Right. And uh, I think he did a beautiful job in in the miniseries. And I thought Rebecca De Mornay did a beautiful job. 
Um, so there, there was a, a, there was talk about, are we folding all of the shinings in? <laughs> like, <laughs> can we, can we somehow get something from, from mix, uh, miniseries in, and, and the SEU. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, throw on a Frank Darabont uh, cameo. That, that's yeah. What you needed. And then we've got everything. This is, so this teeny town set, by the way, I fucking hate it. We, um, <laughs> we, uh, it was supposed to be this elaborate model and the budget, you know, our budget was getting just gutted. And so what we ended up is the painted shoe boxes. That's only about one mm. corner of that square. Um, and I was so disappointed. We ended up shooting it. I think it works great. And we scrambled and the art department poured everything they could. They were painting hand drawing fire escapes on the buildings with like marker. Uh-huh. Um, it, it didn't do, I wanted, I wanted our version of, you know, Nicholson leaning over the miniature hedge maze and we didn't mm. get that so much, but it came out. Okay. Um, but I, I have, uh, I, what I said whenever things went wrong was I was like, well, just, you know, uh, this is it for me. I'm shuffling off this mortal coil, bury me in teeny town. And, um, the crew made me bury me in teeny town, uh, socks as a wrap gift. <laughs> um, it doesn't but, look bad. I mean, no, it, 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 in kids, it's fine. in the, yeah. in the mythology of the movie, in the, in the, the story, it's that kids made it. We, we added that in, in the oh, last really? second. Yeah, it, it was the night before we shot it. I wrote that dialogue where he was like, yeah, children made this. <laughs> um, because initially it was supposed to be this beautiful town project that was like really advanced. And so we added those lines for Cliff to say, he's like, yes, this was made by children, numerous children working independently <laughs> of each other who are not talented, but just really wanted to make something. And, and uh, that was how we tried to explain it. But if, yeah. if you ever get a chance to do a revival... Um, that uh, ever loops back around. Uh, you might still get your little miniature city. Yeah. That dude's yes. got one. Yeah, I you can, hope, you can get a, a Jesus that walks uh, walks across the water and, and yeah. everything. Yeah, little electric Jesus. I, <laughs> I really hope that comes back. I love that thing. I um, can't imagine you, by the way, having like follow like that was your follow up to Midnight Mass. Like I can't imagine you going, <laughs> you know, doing Midnight Mass and then going right into revival. It would have been it would have been too uh, Jesusy. I'm sorry, too, too very Jesusy, a very Jesusy couple of years. God, look um, at her eyes. Yeah. Amazing. And they're both, you know, they're doing this to to the camera. So Emily's laying on the ground, you know, and Rebecca's laying straight back so that you can see her legs, but the camera's just a foot off of Emily's face. And uh, there's that's my younger brother behind Zon there, Jamie Flanagan. There's Katie Parker from Absentia, Robert Longstreet, mm-hmm. of course. And the guy in the foreground there, Met Clark, was our set medic on The Haunting of Hill House. And uh, we just really liked him. He was a great set medic. And now he's a member he of the He saved trio. somebody's life and you can't go into it. And, and this is the, the deal that you made. This is what we did. Um, there's Selena uh, Andrews in the back there, who's also from Haunting. She played Luke's uh, caseworker. And Carl mm-hmm. Stroiken, um, who plays right. Grandpa Flick from, you know, my second time working with Carl, who, who I love to work with. Um, and he's so, so perfect for, for Grandpa Flick, too. You know, yeah. he's got that kind of perfect, not of this time and of this world, like, look to him. Yep. And he he dove just headfirst into it. Um, the steam effect out of this canister, mm. which is all digital. Pot smoke. We did, I don't know, a hundred different versions of it. There were versions that had glitter in it because it needed to look like somehow supernatural. Um, mm. We just, there's a 90 degrees again. I was going to so say. Got in there again. <laughs> yep. um, but uh, it's, 
it was one of the most vexing effects just to do steam so that it didn't look like smoke or exhaust or like pixie breath or (laughs) Harry Potter stuff. It was really tough. I'm curious about the canister. Yeah, the canister was handmade by our props department. Um, We have one. I think they only made two that actually functioned. And uh, Intrepid Pictures has one of them. I don't know where the other one is. I think Warner's cool. has it. But um, hmm. yeah, it, it's an incredible. It's made of metal, and you turn the bottom, and it pops open and closes. And beautiful prop. And Rebecca, but does it capture it. the soul of uh, yes. children who shine in it? <laughs> I, I will say, how authentic the, is it? That's where Jacob <laughs> Tremblay's soul is. Yes. <laughs> well, they they yeah. What, what what they what they didn't finish anyway. The um, the. I, the canisters, the steam canisters is to me kind of the one thing that was on the bubble uh, from the book where I was like, this could get a little goofy, like Monsters, Inc. goofy. And mm-hmm. we, we ended up keeping it mostly because I thought Rebecca sold it. But um, it is a little like. What would the know. alternative be if not canisters? Like what would. Well, that was the, the alternative was we they couldn't store steam. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. I liked the idea that they're. This was a race of monsters whose food was running out. Yes. I really liked that. And, it makes and, them more desperate and dangerous, right? Yeah. It, it gives them fallibility and, and stakes of their own. And, and um, this is also fun. This is where we have, we call him Robo Baby. He's uh-huh. an animatronic infant. Um, Extremely disturbing, Robo by the baby. way. Yeah. Um, the flies were all digital and fun and... Yeah. Um, yeah, this is a little haunting. I, I can see, you know, some of the haunting fingerprints here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it, I, a, this is... Sorry, is. go ahead. Oh, yeah. no, no, go for it. No, I was going to say, this is like one of the more crucial moments in this section of the movie, because this is where Dan as a character, this is his breaking point, right? This is where he, like, legit... This, this is the thing that legit makes him go sober here, yes. right? Yep. So this is... It is such a a crucial moment. Like, so when you're developing something like this, obviously him meeting Billy is really important. He's a very important character, but like you had like, just as a creator, how do you approach a scene? Like what we're looking at now, which is important for the story, but it's not a moment that the entire like character arc hinges on. Like the previous scene was like, how how do you approach those creatively? Do you approach them any differently? Are there ones more stressful ones? Not like, you know, I'm very curious about this. Well, this one actually felt bigger because of this moment right here, which is when he says, I need help. So that's the, that's the turning point. Not, not the, the scare is, is the last of rock bottom, but that moment of him saying, I need help is Mm -hmm. the, is the change of trajectory. So this scene I think is actually more of an inflection point than the previous. Interesting. Um, Hi, Bruce. Uh, And, um, Ewan had really zeroed in on that line too, because that's, you know, for for people in recovery, that moment of acknowledging out loud that you need help is is profound and um, and huge, and that was something that he knew how to sell really beautifully. Um, we, uh, you know, there's an argument that the studio had made early about like the movie could start after this, the movie could start after Dini and and after all of that stuff. Um, well. I disagree. Yeah. <laughs> and, and obviously uh, they were like, I was like, it's about, this is a, a movie about recovery. So we need to see Dan. It's about Dan. The movie's not called the true knot or Abra. It's, it's called Dr. Sleep. Cause it's about him. 
And this is critical um, to not only seeing, you know, the aftermath of The Shining and how it manifested in his life, but to teeing him up to, to be where he's got to go. Um, Bruce Greenwood agreed to come down because he was in Atlanta shooting something else and we could make it work schedule wise. And I love working with Bruce. Uh, you know, he's, he's been on the resident for years, so I can't, I can't use him as much as I'd love to, but he always runs over Like he ran over to be a background ghost in the haunting of Hill house for one <laughs> shot. Um, like, and, and he came to do this and it was just such a, such a, a you know, it's like having family on set. Cause I hadn't worked with Ewan or, or, yeah. or Cliff before. So it was really good to have Bruce there to hold it together. But yeah, this stuff, um, to me, this is, this is the heart of the story and this is what separates it from the shining is you know, the shining is so much about alcoholism and about the anxiety of, of, of a drunk mind wondering what it can do to, to it's, you know, to his family. And, um, this to me is like, this is the real story. This is really what makes the two stories. One story, um, is that Jack falls over the abyss into nothing and into darkness. And this is his son climbing up that cliff face, you know, all the way back to, to good. And, and yeah, this, this for me is like why, why Dr. Sleep exists. I think this is why King wrote it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the argument of, well, you could start the movie after this is like, yeah, but it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be about anything. Yeah. Then why make it? Then you're just kind of, Cashing in on the nostalgia of of the previous movie, right? Speaking uh, of cashing in on nostalgia, no right. shit. <laughs> um, the, the the Ullman office, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, this I we just couldn't resist. Is is the you had the a job interview scene in this one? You're like, well, yeah. fuck it. <laughs> it was it was really just <laughs> like you know, like we're we're going there anyway. Why wouldn't? Why can't we do this? And it was really lovely to me, just because you learn so much about Nicholson's Jack in that interview scene. And it's right. so uncanny. And to see the difference here with Dan, um, it, it's where we first set up that this is at once the same and very different. And um, it's, it was a, it was a joy to kind of try to recreate the space. And it was the first thing we had shot that was a direct rebuild. So for the crew, it was the first day we were in there and we're like, oh shit, we're like in, we're in the Kubrick movie. Um, but to me, it was like this, this underscores the difference between Dan and Jack and says they're literally starting in the same place. Mm, like right. they're the, to the point that the environment is the same. They have the exact same inflection point and they take completely different paths. Yeah. Well, and that just goes back to the circular storytelling nature. It's not just circular within this one movie. It's circular with Kubrick's The Shining as well. And what I really love what you did here is that you're giving Dan so much more depth than I think people would have assumed, you know, going into this. I know that that sounds like I'm I'm saying the audience is kind of dumb and shitty, but like I, I think that what's really impressive to me about this is how you look at Dan is making all the same decisions or going through the same stuff that his father is. And he's choosing different moments. And that's exemplified in the, the, the bartending scene. Yeah. Um, and as uh, my lawn guy is going right by my windows, I'm talking, so that'll be there for, forever. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> but uh, but yeah, it seems to me like that there's so much more nuance and uh, to the character that's added by giving him the same temptations and challenges that his, his father had and couldn't overcome. And so you're you're putting him in, in in a spot where he's as vulnerable as his father. He's just for whatever reason, maybe because of the example his father made to him. Because I know I, I grew up with a an alcoholic uh, a stepfather. He was never like uh, abusive or anything, but you know, just seeing how sloppy he was and how embarrassing he was and out of his mind he was every night. Like it, that's the reason I'm probably the reason why I don't drink and I never have because there's something in the back of my mind saying that you know, that all look like that. And, you know, so maybe there's a positive influence, you know, out of the negativity of what he experienced as a, as a child, you know, mm, that absolutely. maybe that is the thing that pushes him over and gives him the edge that his dad didn't have. Yep. I, I think absolutely that's, that's the case. And, and how, how we can learn from the mistakes of, and the trauma of our, our parents and, and our previous generations. It's, it's really, I think that's baked into King's, themes really really strongly so it's a wonderful playground and we're we're barely at the end of the first act of this movie <laughs> at this point <laughs> this was such a i don't know how they greenlit this movie i got <laughs> they, they um it must have been it i i feel like this doesn't exist without it right um, oh for sure the, yeah. the stephen king craze you know I was think back they, and yeah. they were high on on the it exhaust and um and they went for it because there's no fucking way <laughs> like a studio should green light 160 page script that spends this much time on uh, setting up dominoes. Uh, I read a, another version of the Dr. Sleep script at one point. Me too. Yeah, uh, I, I know the, I know the one you're talking about. Most yep. unfortunate. Um, yeah. So I'm glad they went with this one. That was a, that was a tug of war. I, I, they said, we have a script. And I said, I, no, you I don't. want to, I want to do my own. <laughs> and, um, I, I, I read it and I know what it was going for. And I was like, it, it's not, yeah, it's not, not what I want to do. Um, well, this is just our, such a better idea to marry the, to marry the Kubrick to this one. You here's know, a, here's two seventeen right over his shoulder there. Boom. Oh, nice. We snuck it in. Yeah. It's, the other one got, I mean, people have, have compared this to a superhero movie here and there, which I think is kind of fun. The other one very much is just, it's a superhero movie. Um, yeah. This is one of the reasons I wanted to make the film was this scene, which we took almost verbatim from the book. Um, and uh, this was also when I really... Oh, first of all, I fucking hate working with cats, but uh, love working with these actors. Well, obviously, Getting, anybody who's seen yeah. Midnight Mass knows what you feel about cats. <laughs> oh, cats are just... We, we have, I have a 20-minute take trying to get that three and a half seconds of the cat looking calm near the lens. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I mean, we are... Scre- like the, the handlers are clicking and baby talking and using laser pointers and feather dusters and like... <laughs> and the cat's licking its ass and just like... <laughs> We, that we would have been it. a funny, a funny takeaway too. And this is like dead serious scene. You cut to the cat, just like going to town. We, we did that. I did that in one of the first cuts just as a <laughs> fuck you to the cat. Um, <laughs> where every, the patients wake up and they look down and this cat is just like legs sticking 90 degrees straight up, just like <laughs> chowing down on its own asshole. 
And um, it's like, oh no, Azzy the cat is here. It can only mean one thing. It's time to die. You're uh, dying and it's rim job time. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the this it's such a delicate and quiet scene and, and Ewan is so good in it. Um, and, and, and well, they both, they're both incredible, but it, it was, uh, it's also one of those scenes where you got to be really careful. Cause whenever you say the title of the movie in dialogue, if you don't do it right, you're effectively looking right into the lens and winking. Right. And, um, I thought in this case, you know, it, it really worked, but, uh, and the camera's just right. We're, we're so just physically invading the space of these actors. Um, and they're being so delicate and, and emotionally connected to each other, even though, you know, this, this huge piece of equipment's just six inches from, from their noses. It's really kind of amazing to me that, that, that that's fine acting is how they do that. But, um, And this was another thing that wasn't, uh, if I remember right, wasn't in the previous adaptation at all in the script. The whole Dr. Sleep thing just wasn't there. I'm going to be honest. I didn't finish reading that script. <laughs> I, 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 I did. saw enough yeah. to call it, yeah. <laughs> you know. They, they do that with King stuff, though. They, so much. So many. I, I get early looks at adaptations that are floating around looking for directors. They send them to me a lot. And yeah. I read them and, and I, I usually throw them across the room and just be like, why, why bother? You know, like why bother adapting this, this book if you're not going to do it? Like, well, the, this is why you're so good at King adaptations. I think is that you're delivering the heart that runs very strongly through every King piece of material, you know, there's some we could name a few short stories or a novel here and there that's more nihilistic than others, but he is he does have that uh, that Spielberg heart to it, yeah. to the to all the writing to his characters and stuff. It's not just the the scares and the horror and and all that. And if you don't understand that, you are really not in a position to be adapting Stephen King. I agree with you. Um this is our act break. It's the end of act one. <laughs> Fuck. Um, and I, I'd pitched, we'd go to the overlook in on act breaks and that, that would be how we kind of knew what was up. And, uh, we took this out of the theatrical and I, I was bummed to see it go. Oh, that set, the gold room set was such a joy to walk through. That's another one that's slightly smaller than the, the Kubrick one. Playing that song on that set must've been a moment. Oh, it, and afterward, the crew sat around the bar and um, and had a drink. Yeah, how did and, you know? Did you learn yeah. nothing? Is what you're just screaming. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's um, like, oh, cool, we're making a Friday the Thirteenth, and all the all the crews going off and fucking in the woods. It's like, have you learned nothing? Uh, this is some of my favorite stuff to get to do is is to rely on a a strong actor to carry. Um, to carry something like this. And, you know, there's no cuts in this. It's just a slow push. This is Ewan's second take. Um, and we moved on. He did, did one and then wanted to try something else. And we, we wanted to fix a focus issue. So we did a second one and this is it. Hmm. What did he do he differently? Just, um, he, ple- he played it a little more casual, actually. I think he, he was reaching for a little more, um, little more 
I wouldn't call it soap opera y, but kind of surface emotion on the first take. Mm. And he he felt it and came back and was like, no, I, I can pull a lot of that in. This is this isn't about him getting emotional. It's about him trying not to get emotional. And um Ewan McGregor's a you know phenomenally skilled actor. And yeah, look at his body language here. Yeah. It, um, it, you know, you look one frame of this and you're like, that's a wounded fucking person. Well, and he picked clothes that didn't fit him right. He did that on purpose. A lot of actors want to look as good as they possibly can on screen. Mm-hmm. And Ewan was like, no, his, his clothes are bought secondhand. They're not his size. They're either a size too small or a size too large. And um, he's trying to look good. But he also was like, and he wears blue sweaters because that's what he did as a kid. Hmm. Hmm. And that's, that's a comfort crutch for him. Um, it would have been funny to have him in the Apollo sweater. We did joke <laughs> about that. Um, Same size, like a kid's small. <laughs> yeah, right. Just a rusting hairy, out of it. Yeah, his hairy belly button. It's like a no, belly yeah. shirt. The studio would be like, yeah, that's great. The audience will know it's the same kid. Yeah, that'll work. <laughs> uh, but um, I, I, I really do love the speech because it, it humanizes Jack in a way that yeah, that um, he was. It gives him the nuance that I think King was always bitching about him not having in in the the Shining. Like it's and maybe why you know he's kind of softened on Kubrick's version because that scene, um, probably more than any other, is the human Jack, right? Yeah. That that we get in this a glimpse of what his, the the more idealized version of his father Danny has in his mind and how he was saying. You know, I'm I'm doing this for my dad because he never got the chance, and you know he wanted nothing more in the world than to, you know, d- do what I am doing right now, and he never did it. Yeah, yeah. Is this a set or a location? This is a set, and uh, the rest of it, the other one, is a location. Mm-hmm. Um, we just didn't have time at the location to do this scene, so we built only this room on the set. And um, the cat you see is hanging out there, looking at the trainer. <laughs> um that every we used every frame of that push where the cat wasn't fucking off and we cut away just as the cat jumped off the bed and ran away and Ewan was uh incredibly patient through this doing that that whole slow push again and again and again waiting for the cat next to him to like behave <laughs> it, it took a long time you um, should have brought the robo baby in and just thrown it in a cat seat <laughs> robo cat um, we talked about RoboCat. I wish we'd done RoboCat. <laughs> um, but yeah, this this stuff for me, in, in the studio at this point, I remember, you know, they're like, I thought we were doing a horror movie that's a sequel to The Shining. And how many of these tender deathbed scenes do you plan on doing? Because we're like an hour to the movie. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, this is what it's about. And I think that's when we probably should have realized um, <laughs> that this might not go the way they want it to go. <laughs> But um, when I hear stories like that, though, I'm curious about this because I've I've heard that kind of story before. And the first thing that always comes to mind is, well, didn't you read the fucking script? Yeah, and and they do. And I think there's there's something different when when you're building the cut. Um, I think it's that's fair. I don't know how to I have a hard time reading a script sometimes and visualizing the way that movie would play. Mm-hmm. And I think executives spend an enormous amount of time honing that whatever that visualization skill they have is. And almost never in my experience of the like three executives and the filmmaker and the producers, um, everyone has something different in their head. Sure. And so there's always when you when you show the first cut, 
because even watching dailies, you don't see, you don't, you don't, you're evaluating the shot. So when you, when you finally sit down with the cut, there's this adjustment period where everybody has to recalibrate their expectations to the Mm. reality of what was shot. And, um, in the, in my case, I'm usually like, yeah, this is what I thought we all agreed on. (laughs) And they were going to be like, uh, oh, Um, (laughs) I didn't think it'd be like this, but the, my execs on this though, they loved this movie. Like the, the people at Warner brothers were unflinchingly supportive of this throughout. I think they were emboldened by it. Um, and, but they remained even after, after it kind of, you know, nose dove on release they remained very proud of the film and they were like, you know, we wouldn't do anything differently. Well, the and fact that they gave you this cut. Yeah. They, that was incredible and they didn't have to do that or they could have let me throw an avid file up there and not, but they, we finished all the effects. Like we did a whole separate mix for it and they really, really let me finish the movie. Um, and I think if they had their way, they, they'd go back and cut the theatrical back to like an hour and 45 minutes and really jam out a lot of that act one stuff. Yeah. But I don't think it would have made a difference. I, I think mm. it's still, then it would have underperformed and, and been a bit incomprehensible. Right. Um, I really did not expect to like this movie when I saw it because I really, sure. I really did not like the book. And I thought you were playing with fire after Gerald's game. You know, you're right. You, you, you're completely right. We you, were. You, oh, you yeah. absolutely were. You know, you, yeah. you pulled off a miracle here. And what's this is this is just my favorite kind of movie. It comes it comes along so rarely where you'll you'll be like, I don't know that they're gonna pull this off, or like, I don't know that I'm gonna like it because I didn't like the source material. Then you see it and you're like, oh, that was great. But then not only that, but then Every time I watch this, I see new things in it that I've never seen before. And like I Dandelope. love it even more. Yeah, like, well, perfect example. <laughs> you know, right. it's, um, that's so rare. Oh, I, a movie I, like that, that you get lot. maybe one of those a year. Maybe, if you're lucky. Well, we, we threw everything like we had at this. It's still the biggest production I've ever been a part of. Um, and... You know, it, it, I, I, we left everything on the field. So I'm, I'm really glad that, that it resonated. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're, you're completely correct. We were playing with fire. We, uh, there were people who were guaranteed to never like this movie out the sure. gate. And, and, you know, we were never going to change their minds. Um, but man, I think, I think we, we got to make the best version of Dr. Sleep that anyone in their right mind would ever let us make. So mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, and, it's I remember be- this, and it's better than yeah. the book. I gotta say, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, uh, <laughs> I can't, I, yeah. Yeah. You I can't, can't respond I to can't that. I can't say that, but, but yeah, I can it, say it. it's, you know, um, it, it is, it just is. I, uh, I feel like the, my favorite parts of the book are all intact. And I'm really proud of the things that we got to invent as well. Like it, it, it was a really fun challenge. And I, I remember when I was writing the script, I had my laptop in my lap. I had the shining novel on my left-hand side. I had the doctor sleep novel on my right-hand side. And I was just flipping through pages and, you know, and I, I was watching the shining three times a week and um, I'll never, I'll never have another job like this again. Like, 
Well, there, there never would be another job like this again. So, yeah. Um, oh man, it's, it's all, they, this, oh shit. Oh, here we go. Here comes our boy. <laughs> the one thing I'll throw in before we get into this, uh, brutal brutality, mm-hmm. um, the, uh, that campground where the true knot is camping is, uh, one of the principal sets for jungle cruise. <laughs> and they had uh, they had abandoned it just before we got in there. So the true knot is cohabitating in the same space that like the rock was jungle cruising. <laughs> that's so weird. And Wasn't I that found Danny? that so funny. That was yeah. Danny Lloyd, right? Yeah, that's in Danny the Lloyd. There he is. Yep. So uh, reached out to him on Twitter and <laughs> said, "You want to come be in the movie?" And he came for one day, and it was such a blast. Um, and we just sat at his feet and like listened to his stories, and he hadn't you know, made a movie since yeah. he was a kid. He's a so teacher he now, right? Something like that. Yeah, He's a high school teacher. And now and again, his students kind of figure it out and, and, and write red rum on the blackboard. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, fuck that. He, if I was him, I'd be telling every, I'd be mentioning it every day. Oh, and by was, the way, you have homework yeah. tonight. And if you got a problem with that, remember that I was in the shining motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> He, he had such incredible stories. He had forgotten things like, oh, right, you do more than one angle to cover a scene. This is all coming back to me now. And, <laughs> and, like, and we would ask tons of, of what he remembered about working with Jack and Shelly and, and Stanley. And, um, and we just, yeah, we sat at his feet at, on the bleachers that, that afternoon, just listened to him talk. And we're still in touch. We still reach out every couple of weeks and say hi. Nice. But, it is um, uh, and, worth pointing out for Dark Tower fans that uh, – 19 on him uh, on mm-hmm. Jacob Tribble's yeah. uh, outfit uh, has a significance for Dark Tower nerds. Yeah. So this scene, um, we found this real abandoned industrial plant that was full of trash and um, compost heaps. So it smelled like vomit and feces <laughs> <laughs> and they bulldozed it out and covered it with peanut shells and other things like to make it smell like mint. So it smelled like mint vomit by the time we got there. <laughs> Um, and I used to dry heave when we'd location scout it. Um, and so, you know, this is a notorious scene and mm-hmm. deserves to be, it is in the book as well. Um, although Stephen King will say we took it further than he did. And he, <laughs> he didn't, he, he was like, that's a bit much. Um, this, uh, Jacob Tremblay, you know, I worked with Jake when he was seven on before I wake and just think the world of him. He's an incredibly talented, like maybe the most talented young actor working, I think. And uh, he had prepared this whole scene by himself with his father in the weeks coming up to it. We started with his close up just to get it over with Rebecca and the rest of the true not were all swagger. They're like, we're going to kill this kid. Ha ha ha. And Jacob just did this. And Rebecca couldn't remember her lines. The crew dropped their equipment and walked away. Um, Zahn McLarnon started crying. Um, and Holy shit. we, yeah. And we sat in the, in the trailer, like we had this little trailer pulled up with the, with the monitors and Trevor Macy and I are sitting next to Jacob Tremblay's father, who's grinning ear to ear, by the way. <laughs> and Trevor and I are just like our stomachs dropped out and we kind of looked at each other. We were like, what the fuck are we like, did we do here? <laughs> and then Jacob finishes his take covered with blood because we're Bob Kurtzman is splashing blood on him with a paintbrush from just out of frame. Hmm. And, um, Jacob hops up and he's like, Oh, that was fun. And then runs off to crafty high fives his dad uh, as he passes. (laughs) 
um, <laughs> and goes and gets some candy, and we're all fucking traumatized. Okay. <laughs> and um, total silence, like total, total funerary silence. And then Rebecca Ferguson walks up to me, and she goes very quietly. She's standing very close, and she's like, holy shit. I'm like, yeah. And she goes, there's no way that little shit is going to win this scene. Let's go again. We're on. Mute. <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, and so then we did Rebecca's coverage that you see here. And she, by that point, Jacob's not acting anymore. Like he wasn't doing anything. Yeah. We were like, you already did it. You don't have to do it again. And so Rebecca got to do her side of it. And the rest of the true not did their side of it while Jacob laid there and just kind of giggled. But um, <laughs> it was, uh, it was insane. We knew it was going to be an issue and we knew, but it's like, this is how you make them the monsters of the story. Right. Like it's, it's the inciting incident that animates everything that happens afterward. And, um, and every cut I played, people got up and left. Executives got up and left. Warner's employees mm-hmm. got up and left. We, we tried different lengths of it. We cut individual shots out, profiles, close-ups, And, um, and I thought we had it cracked. And then Stephen King was like, I, I, I think that's too much. And we we're like, we're back to it, dude. We're going to cut more. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it, you know, it's, it's a, it's a shocker. It's a stunner. Um, I finally got my, I think I've told you this before, but my wife is, you know, the biggest shining fan in the world and uh, refused to watch this for a long time because she felt, that she didn't want she didn't want a sequel to the shining period you know one one of those uh kind of kind of fans and i finally got to uh got her to sit down and watch this with me not long ago and uh but she did make me fast forward through the baseball boy scene she like <laughs> knew that was coming and was like nope nope i'm just not doing it <laughs> this is i think the worst part of the scene is when he stops fighting oh yeah and he's just yeah. slowly dying yeah um, and we had a line in there where Rebecca says, like, I thought, you know, she's disappointed that he's not sticking around. And, and right. she had a line that's like, oh, I thought he had a, lo- a few more minutes in him or something. Yeah. And um, we we took that out. <laughs> Fucking dark. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was just too much. But not Kate has a hard time watching this. Like, I I had a hard time in the moment when we shot it. But I. Now I watch it and I'm, I watch it just admiring Jacob Tremblay's, the, just the power of his performance. Mm-hmm. It's, it's incredible. It sounds yeah. like you were prepared for it to be rough, but Tremblay delivered so hard yeah. <laughs> that no one was ready for what he did. Like he, he, there's a thing with kid actors where you can always feel the acting. Mm-hmm. And when they, when, especially with big emotions or they're, they're scared, they're like, ah, you know, um, they, they'll take it about 80% and that's enough, you know, but Jacob, Jacob doesn't have a ceiling and he's just real. And, um, right. Kylie is like that too. Like I, both the kids in this movie are like really, really advanced. And, um, but yeah, we, we just weren't ready. None of us are ready. And I think it, it's rough cause it, it, it can knock people out of the movie, but it, we need it. Like, and you need it in something that's really crucial. I think, to, to point out is that Abra is such a powerful character, especially when she teams up with Dan, who's also powerful. Like you need something like this to show um, 
what how much of against. a threat the true not yeah, is yeah. right because into to what will happen if they succeed like because then yeah. you you carry that with you whenever you know she's uh abra's in rose's sights right because then you yep. you may be flashing like this is what's going to be in store for her if they catch her so you need you need that threat because honestly like from this point forward, when, when Abra is engaged, she, you know, it's like fucking Yoda, right? Like she's, she is way more powerful than anybody else in, in this mm-hmm. movie. Yep. So you need to have that threat of like, if she fucks up, if she drops her guard or whatever, that could be her, you know, she could be buried, you know, somewhere after being tortured for, for hours or, or as Rose was saying, like she's trying, the plan is to keep her for years and milk her like a cow essentially. So, yep. And not and, for nothing, but I feel like, you know, uh, up to that scene, the true knot is painted somewhat sympathetically. You know, yes. there's that scene at the very beginning with the kid. But it's more ominous than violent. You know, you're not you're not seeing the it, it's certainly nothing like that. And then you get the scene in the movie theater where it's, you know, a pedophile gets taken out. So, you, yeah. And then you see a lot of them like just interacting with each other. They're hugging each other. They're taking care of each other, cooking for each other, all this kind of stuff. You know, they're. Um, they don't seem yeah. so bad. You're like, yeah, they're vampires, <laughs> but also, you know, look at that hug, you know, and then this happens. and You're like, OK, these guys suck. Yeah. And, and the threat has to have equal weight to the, you know, to Abra. So it. it Right. And it's funny because, you know, Rebecca understood that so well in the moment. And, and even afterward was like, no, in the next scene for me to, to, for me to keep the audience where I want them with Rose, she was like, I want to be covered in his blood. I want you to see it from the tips of my fingers to my elbows. Mm-hmm. Like I, I need to wear that kid's blood for the next scene. And she's like, and if I can get them back to the point that they still love my performance, like that's, that's how you make a great villain. Right. And she did. Um, I have a question. How does Dan explain the giant murder crack in his wall? To his <laughs> so we talked about that. The best we could come up with was he forfeited his security deposit. <laughs> <laughs> there is just no way out of it. Um, and he never cleans it up. Um, <laughs> like he, he just abandons his lease. Uh, if, if Billy had survived, he, he would have been on the hook with that lady. But um <laughs> Other weird things like the uh, these weird rabbit drawings, these anatomical mm. dissected rabbit drawings on the fridge, um, we had put in to additionally make the baseball boy scene awful, mm. like to then show like a a bisected <laughs> biological creature like hanging on the fridge. Um, yeah, that rabbit also played by Jacob Tremblay, also played by Jacob, who drew it himself. Um, uh fun little haunting stuff. The kid um, there with the long hair, he played Elizabeth Reese's son in haunting and right above him is the bowler hat. Mm. Um, like we, we do a little haunting thing there. Nice. Um, and so now like we, we kept talking about the different movies we were making. Like there was the true not movie, Dan's movie and Abra's movie. And those three movies collided only at the end. Mm-hmm. And um, this is now Abra's movie. Like we've, we've done Dan's, We've done the true knot and now while we've tracked Abra, it's like we hand most of this movie off to her now and she becomes our, our whole proxy. Um, and Kylie Curran who played Abra, this is like her first job. We were, I think we, we auditioned 900 kids, some of whom I'd worked with before who are wonderful and some of whom, you know, huge movie stars 
And uh, Kylie lived 10 minutes away from our production office in Atlanta and self-taped. And it was just like, that's, that's her. How many of those 900 auditions are you actually watching? I watch about a hundred of those probably all in. So they're um, just, they're bringing you the best of the best basically. Yeah. Every one of them is viewed multiple times. Um, and we have a whole kind of cascading system in place with casting as, as tapes work their way up and auditions work their way up. And, uh, Oh, do you see Ka above her there? Yep. Um, yeah. One of with our, the, yeah, our balloon animal. Right. Yep. The balloon animal and the A for Abra. We did a little Ka over her head. Um, this is some of my favorite stuff to do is stuff without dialogue. Like I take a lot of flack for monologuing cause I, I love <laughs> monologues. Yep. Um, stuff like this where just, we get to do pure visual storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, God, this was fun. And to like deal with the, the room rotation and, and the astral projection and really start getting into like a physical manifestation of the shining. Um, this is some of the most fun I've ever gotten to have. And, and, we built a, a window that rotated on a soundstage, you know, all the way up 180 degrees and hung a stunt person from it and rigged the camera to it so we could rotate the whole rig way above our heads until they were hanging from it and then married that to the room and like all the crazy technical stuff to build some of these effects. Um, I remember one executive saying, this is when the movie started. And it was like, this is when the conflict, the central conflict is really engaged. But, you know, right. we're, we're so deep into this movie at this point. The, it, it's such an epic story. Um, and yeah. I think that's part, part of the reason why I prefer the, the director's cut to the theatrical, though, is that the director's cut feels more novelistic, yeah. you know, with the chapter breaks and everything. And, and it just I think it tells you right up front as a viewer, like this is the experience you're in for. So you're not you know, sitting there chomping at the bit for the, as you said, the conflict to start. Yep. And there's Kylie just owning it, like carrying, carrying a wordless sequence like this that teaches you so much about who Abra is. That that's, that's difficult for a seasoned Mm -hmm. adult actor. And this is her first gig. Like she's, she's dynamite that kid. Um, Yeah, and here it is. This all this stuff we we spent weeks trying to figure out how to do it and make it look great um, to pull off these these crazy kind of visions. Oh, her shoes change. That's one of the big problems with her movie. No, um, when she lifts up there, her shoes are completely different. Um, and I don't think she was wearing any in the bed, I think is one of the problems mm. when she first laid down. But, um, but then we also were like, we were like, Kubrick didn't give a shit about continuity. So we, we were like, fuck it. Oh, uh, fun trivia. Rebecca Ferguson filled that cart herself when she first <laughs> arrived on set. She made the list herself and she picked items specifically for each member of the True Knot um, that she had a story for. And there's weird shit in there. There's like Bud Light, condoms, and boiled peanuts. <laughs> and, um, the boiled peanuts goes goes good with the uh the post jacob tremblay dinner yep condoms are for crawdaddy you know it yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I, I asked her i was like what are the purpose of the condoms like in their in their world you know it's a good like, question a completely closed system and she was like some of them like condoms and i was like okay all right you've really <laughs> given this a lot of thought um but uh 
we shot in a real supermarket like overnight and um, really kind of got to shatter the glass and do all the stunt work in there. And uh, yeah, it was really, really a blast. Mm. I think all of this, I think this whole thing is, well, no, this isn't, this isn't the the sequence. Oh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the turn world sequence. Yeah. The invasion sequence where she like, where Rose the Hat turns it around on her, which is yeah. yet to come. You know, I think that's my favorite sequence in the movie. This is good. This is no slouch. I'm just oh, this is this is just warming up for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do love it. Shows how protective of her, of her hat that Rose is there as well. Like she just yeah. doesn't want the rubes to touch it. There's only one of those hats in the world. It, you know, typically you make duplicates for a movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was a real, uh, more than a hundred year old beaver skin, uh, hat, beaver pelt hat. And they, they had modified it and done all sorts of stuff to it. And we only had one and Rebecca wouldn't let anyone touch it. (laughs) Did she keep it? Um, I have it. (laughs) (laughs) Take that Rebecca. I win. Um, And you you just randomly touch it and go touch the hat. Rebecca, what are you going to do about it? Yep, take that, Ferguson. You got Dune, I got the hat. <laughs> um, but yeah, even the stand-ins and doubles and stuff all had, they had top hats, but not that one. It was like completely different. And Where have you gotten, do you have it displayed or is it just on a shelf? I do, or- I, I have it in, I got a like pedestal, museum pedestal display for it and it's under acrylic. You can't, can't my kids can't get at it. Um, <laughs> it. It's really funny. It's like you go into my house and there's just this pedestal with a hat. Um, but I, I love that hat and everything it represents and that long pin she has stuck in it, mm-hmm. that hat pin she told me was, you know, she used it to, uh, poke, poker, poke, poke the victim kids with, and she had a whole story for how her hat was a weapon. But, hmm. um, Thrown it like that dude and James Bond. Yeah. <laughs> This is a stupid question, but what are hat pins for? I don't think I know. I have no idea. Hmm. Maybe to pin something to the hat, like a flower? That would make sense. Or a big old press uh, uh, thing, like in, yeah. Playing the old-timey movies. Yeah. Um, Press guard. This uh, this set, the interior of her trailer, was something we worked on a ton, and Rebecca was very involved in, like, what, what... creature comfort she would have accumulated over the years. And there's something from like every decade going back, you know, 150 years in there. It's really weird. It's a nice ass trail. Giant tub. <laughs> yeah. With the giant tub, which you don't typically associate with mobile, mobile yeah. homes. Yeah. I think I could it's, live in a motorhome if it were like this one. There's a lovely moment where he tried to touch her hand and she swats him away there that just cracks mm. me up every time. Um, we haven't talked about uh, some of the other, like Jocelyn Donahue mm. here who plays Abra's mom um, and Zach Momo who plays her dad. Like, parts that are critical and in a, in a smaller movie would, would feel much larger, but you know, because the movie's so big, you, you feel like they're, they're small. They got a ton of screen time. They do a ton of great work. Yeah. Um, 
Oh, this is a one of the big question marks I always had was how she got a ticket unaccompanied onto a bus, and we just were like, "Fuck it, she did." She just walks up and yeah. says, it. "That's how Tet Transit uh, rolls, baby." I can't believe how frequently I'm seeing Tet Transit in this movie, and I've never ever <laughs> noticed it before. Yeah, I've seen this it's, like three, four times. It's everywhere. Um, uh, and then the one that people are like, "Oh, and you did an Elm Street thing there," and it's like, "No, that is just Elm Street." In, in that town that's one we didn't do on purpose um this was uh kylie's first shot of uh of the whole job this is her first scene with ewan um who really drove the train around um and we had all these local kids and um they all as soon as he got on set to drive the train they jumped up and down and they started calling him obi-wan yeah they must have lost their shit they did and ewan you know um we all kind of knew on the crew not to like get all star Wars with him. Um, Why is he not? He's, uh, you don't want to talk about it or he, he was fine. He was just kind of like, it's not what he wants to be, you know, remembered for the most. And it, and it also like, it was just, it was just kind of an unspoken thing of like, we, we, we all know you're Obi-Wan Kenobi. We're not going to talk about it. Right. It's <laughs> um, like having Harrison Ford in your movie and go, not just yeah. calling him Han Solo or Indiana Jones the whole time. Right. And, but with the kids, he went kid to kid for about 15 minutes and answered all their questions. And they'd be like, do you know Chewbacca? And he'd be like, I do know Chewbacca. Yeah, we're good friends. He's about <laughs> this tall. And, you know, and he kind of smells like, have you ever smelled a gerbil? He smells like a gerbil. You know, like he was really, <laughs> like really generous and like kept the kids wonder alive with it and then did the scene. And I, I thought in that moment, it really made me kind of love him as a person. It was like, he didn't have to do that. And no. and, uh, and he did it. And then one of my ADs dressed up as a Jedi on Halloween, and I thought Ewan was going to punch him. <laughs> like, so there, there's another side to it. But uh, he was great with the kids. It, with the what did you dress up for, for uh, Halloween? I dressed up as David S. Pumpkins, um, <laughs> complete with the, the suit and the wig. Um, and Ewan McGregor had no idea what that was. <laughs> right. And I have a picture. I will send it to you guys. I Please have do. a photograph that they took of me. And I'm looking right at the camera with the biggest dumbass grin on my face. And Ewan is standing a foot away from me, just staring at me like, what the fuck are you? <laughs> and no one knows what David S. Pumpkins is, though. So that's perfect. It uh, It's one of my favorite photographs ever taken on set. And I look like the biggest fucking idiot and ewan is just like why am i working with this guy and um <laughs> i have it framed i printed it and framed it in my office because it to me defines my relationship with ewan mcgregor which is just like <laughs> we made this movie together i love him to pieces I, i'd work with him any day and i feel like in his head i'm always that guy in the david s pumpkins <laughs> outfit right who he just didn't understand and was just like what is this weirdo doing um, but we, we got along wonderfully and, and, uh, I, I think the world of the guy, but that I'll send you guys the picture. It's fucking hilarious. Can't um, wait to look at it. I, I have a question here because yeah. they're this scene. They're talking about Tony a yeah. lot. And this is something that, um, I'm still unclear of even as the co-host of a now multi-year Stephen King podcast, never revisited the books, revisit all the adaptations. I'm still unclear on, on, uh, what Tony is because I kind of feel like, Dr. Sleep is kind of setting up that Tony was like almost an uncle Dan type, the way that Abra reaches out to this random person that Tony could be that. But I know in the miniseries King makes it very uh, apparent that Tony is the, the grown up 
like the the grown up Daniel Daniel Torrance fucking like somehow reaching through time to to talk to the younger version of him. Like, what what was your understanding of Tony going into this? So I I'm more with you on the first one. I I thought Tony is a radio signal from another shiner, um, right? And that as a kid he just didn't really understand it, and that it was equal parts some kind of intervention from someone too distant to do anything, and his own intuition that he was having a right. premonition that he put a name and a personality to. I think the name Tony is probably someone that he connected with. Um, and I think a lot of what Tony showed him is really just him. Um, but I, I like the, what King did in the miniseries with it. Right. The, the question it begged for me here is because he doesn't use the shining as an adult. He would have for us to be true to that mythology. I would have needed to have him sit there and time travel for a couple of minutes in the middle of this, just to be, Oh, I got to go back in time and do this thing. I'll be with right. you in a minute um, before he, you know, he dies. I got to go send a mental image of a bloody elevator to my five-year-old self. Give me a sec. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think of it as there were other people out there that he he touched on. Um, this is actually, yeah, there's the fucking teeny town hat. Uh, this This is actually <laughs> the midpoint of the movie. This is the exact middle of the script. And, um, I remember they, they said, and he should rally for her. And I was like, I really want him not to. Like, I really want him to say no. Right. Um, which is true to the book and, and to the character, I think. It's also a Stephen Kingism. It reminds me a little bit of um, Charlie McGee's father mm-hmm. telling mm-hmm. him, telling her not to use her powers because it's dangerous and she yeah. can't control it and it brings danger to her. Um, and he has a similar arc here where he kind of lets her go, you know, at, at the at the end to, to shine on, you know. Yep. On, Abra. Um, that was their audition scene. Oh, you can see that those fucking teeny town boxes. <laughs> God, I hate them. <laughs> you to this day, hate I hate them. Oh, but yeah, there's the same bench from the beginning. Um, yep. And then we loop right back in the same shots that we were in at the top. Um, right. So this is a scene that only exists in the director's cut. And uh, I really loved this as, you know, not only a way to explain why, why our Danny and Kubrick's have different color eyes, um, mm. but to see kind of some of the emotional aftermath between Wendy and Danny. And this was all to tee up that conversation at the bar. Um, mm. And I, I loved this little moment. It reminded me, it, it's another great chance to touch back into the Kubrick film and kind of take us back in time at, at an act break and in a structural point at midpoint, it's a great time right. to do that. Did, um, um... Alex ever speak to Shelley Duvall? She did not. We didn't know how to find Shelley when we were prepping this. She's since been, you know, been locatable. Oh yeah. I don't know that she would have talked to us, but she's um, basically right up the street from Aragon. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah, like maybe an hour away, I think. Right. Wow. Yeah, yeah. She's just outside Austin. Yeah. We're absolutely not going to be bothering Shelley Duvall, <laughs> but. Yeah. yeah, I. The, we we also have the same feeling of like we don't want to intrude on. Shelly or do anything to, you know, drum anything up for her. So yeah, that piece that, that she had recently, you know, come out about her and she was talking about it. She seemed to be at peace with what happened, but it's still, yeah, it's rough. Her, her experience is the kind of the, the getting beaten up a little bit on that set. Yeah. Um, you don't, and you don't want to be like, like Mike said, you don't want to, dr- you know, dredge anything right. up or even risk doing that. You know, it's, Leave the poor it, woman it, alone. Is, is the magazine that he's reading is that is that the Playgirl? 
It is the exact playgirl that uh, Jack is reading. I knew it. I yeah. knew it. Mm-hmm. Um, we, yes. we tracked Holy it down. Shit. Yeah. It's the exact one from the, the uh, well, the, the same issue, not the one they same actually. Issue. Yeah, not, okay. not the screen used prop, but right. it is the exact same issue Nicholson reads in The Shining. Yeah, so inexplicably, it's one of those like big <laughs> wormhole things that you can go down. Like, why the fuck is Jack Nicholson in this scene just reading a Playgirl magazine? Yeah, in the lobby of, of the hotel. Like, it's, it's just yeah, sitting in the lobby. Thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, it's a bizarre moment in that movie, but, um, it was something, uh, I thought it would be a really cool reach back. Ewan was all over it. Mm-hmm. He was like, oh, that's fantastic. Give me that playgirl. Um, <laughs> and then we, we were trying to sneak it in, in a way that wouldn't kind of, uh, rock the boat at the studio at first, because right. we hadn't had that conversation. So it's shot kind of like, you can tell what it is, but we're also not, you know, spotlighting it. Yeah, I mean, um, I can also assume for people who aren't like diehard Shining fans, they right. might go, "Oh, is Danny gay or bi or like what?" You know, yeah, which which that? is a reading of the movie that I quite love because I think right. there's you know there's an ambiguity there that I I think Ewan leaned into, and he and Cliff have a really lovely relationship in this movie right. that you know flirts with that idea, and that was something that we all just kind of were like, "Yeah, sure." Of course, we, why not? We haven't um, talked about Cliff Curtis much. Maybe we should wait for his next scene. But right. man, that guy is, as uh, our uh, uh, friends across the pro- pond say, uh, the absolute boy. Yeah. That guy rules. Every time Every time Cliff Curtis shows up in something, I'm excited. Me too. And he's a chameleon. He, he, yeah, right? He can play anything. And um, he's it was played, interesting. like every race, color, creed at this point. Like, he's, oh, yeah. He's you think great. of him in like training day and then you look yeah. at him in the Meg and it's like, and then you look at this and like, what, who <laughs> is Cliff Curtis? And he's the sweetest dude from New Zealand. And such and, an anonymous um, name, Cliff Curtis, mm-hmm. yeah. John Smith, you know, nice alliterative name. Yeah. And Indeed. he's got a lot of responsibility here because you've condensed multiple characters into, into Billy. Yeah. Here. Mm-hmm. Right. So like the doctor character that Greenwood plays, like he, I think Billy has a lot of his business now. Yep. Um, and there was another character. I forgot the name from the novel, but there was like another character that was um, uh, kind of along on the journey with, with them and that you condensed into Billy Hello? as well. Oh. Hello. Hello. I lost you guys for a second. Hi. Oh, no. You're well, fine. we're good. It's all good. Bad, bad connection. It just dropped out. Yeah. He, he is a, an amalgamation. Um, Do we lose Vespi? No. I'm here. Oh, yeah. We're listening to you, baby. No. I, I can hear you. Can you hear oh, us? So, sorry. I, I, yeah. Sorry, everyone no. at home. My connection. Yeah, tech, tech difficulties. Yeah. This is the most yeah. professional commentary you've ever heard. <laughs> Yet another KingCast exclusive. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he's, he's an amalgamation and an amazing performer and was a, a delight to have every day. Um, he... Uh, Initially, Henry Thomas was was like in line to be Billy, and mm-hmm. I had I had put it to Henry of like I can I've got Billy and I've got Jack, so like mm-hmm. you tell me how brave you're feeling because I I'd <laughs> love to put you into Jack, but if if you stay no way I I've got Billy nice and warm and it's a, a part you can play and and Henry you know Henry uh, thought about it overnight like he was he was not immediate to answer. And I uh, came back the next day and said, fuck it. Like if you're putting your head in the, in the guillotine, like let me come in there with you and uh, we'll, we'll live or die together on it. Um, 
and uh, and then that opened it up, and then we we and then I met Cliff, and it was like, oh, this is perfect. But um, uh, but yeah, yeah, we didn't get to talk about the Dick Halloran scene back there, right? Yeah, yeah, which we should because uh, well, one one question I know this has nothing to do with Dick himself, but like, did you ever have anybody at like Warner's when you screened the movie or showed him a rough cut? And they go, what the fuck is Ka? And what, what's what's this nonsense thing that you just put in here? You know, because yeah. that makes no sense to, to anybody. I guess you can use context clues and like kind of put it together. You know, that Ka is like fate or destiny or yeah. whatnot. I would like, assume so. it was some word I had never heard before and then just play it cool so I didn't look stupid. They um, uh, So on the script they asked and I explained it and they had to go to Sony to get permission. Um, oh, so they actually had to clear it through Sony. They did. And, Sony and we, owns Ka. <laughs> That's they, so fucking they, funny. Yeah, they they had to go and be like, "You've got Dark Tower. Can we say this line?" And they so we got Venom, permission. They have Ka. <laughs> well, yeah. they, don't, they don't. They no longer have uh, have the Dark Tower, but they they yeah. did at the time, and we right. had to go get it. And um, and then when the execs who weren't part of the script, like when we opened it up as a cut, a lot of people thought he said cause is a wheel like cause and effect. Mm. Okay. And so they were like, that's a weird line. Did he, did he flub the line? And I was like, no, it's a, it's an Easter egg for King fans. Mm. You're not going to care. And they're going to lose their shit. <laughs> right. And uh, they were, they didn't really understand it, but they let us keep it. What and about the actor? I remember did you have at to the explain? premiere, I heard oh, the room when that line hit, there's about a third of the audience that just gasped. And I was like, there they are. They're the, they're the tower. Fans. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. And there's Ka. There it is over the, uh, over the bed again. Um, this alludes to the, one of the big plots we removed from the book, which is uh, Momo, Haber's grandma. Hmm. Um, one of the biggest kind of things we took out was this story that Jack Torrance had an affair with Abra's uh, grandmother and that Abra really is Danny's niece. And so the whole uncle Dan thing is literal in the book. Yeah. Uh, I just don't, we didn't like that. that. Yeah. We (laughs) we didn't like it either. We we were like, "Ah, I I like it way better that just anyone can have this power and they don't need to be related. It's like the star Wars problem. Yeah. Right. Philandering Um, star Wars. Yes. Uh, so yeah, we, we, kind of talked around it. Um, but so this sequence, um, is one of the sequences I'm the proudest of, uh, in, in the movie and in any, anything I've gotten to work on. And it's the first thing I ever storyboarded for this film. And every frame I drew out, um, we started developing how it would work very early, huge feat of, um, uh, visual effects that I was never happy with. I went back and forth for six months beating the poor visual effects department up on this because I wanted it just so. And, um, but the idea was that Rose wouldn't be looking Gosh. down at the earth. Yeah, isn't that pretty? Like the earth would it's come stunning. to her. Um, mm. And I wanted it to be photorealistic and I wanted it to feel gentle and quiet and not like Superman soaring, but just she was in total control of the whole planet. Um, and Rebecca's hanging on a wire so that her feet aren't on the ground. So she's just on a soundstage looking at nothing with a fan blowing in her face, um, doing her side of the performance. 
And then the rest of it was blue screen VFX. But this descent shot we're getting to, this profile, um, God, hundreds of iterations back and forth with a very frustrated visual effects department. It was <laughs> one of the last shots that we finished um, to bring in this quiet, silent kind of landing. It's so um, eerie, you know, it's. And there's my 90 degree roll. <laughs> <laughs> Now I'm never going to be able to not notice that. Um, and all this stuff, like just, uh, it, it really, this, this whole sequence was some of the most fun I, I ever got to have. And, and um, we did little touches here. I think her mailbox um, is 1980s. So it's the year The Shining was released, mm. the, the house number there. This shot of her going through the window is the last finished shot of Dr. Sleep. We got it days before um, we had to premiere the movie. <laughs> and her going through the window here uh, that was the last thing we ever did um and again i really really frustrated my vfx department so um can't make an omelet without breaking some visual defects apartments yeah <laughs> they, they I, i'm sure their their take on it would just be like yeah he was impossible to please with this sequence and they'd be right um <laughs> But I love where it landed. I, I'm so pleased with it. And I saw this movie in IMAX opening weekend. Uh, or no, before opening weekend. Yeah, I saw it in IMAX early when they finished, the, when they finished it. And the theater was empty. That's why I thought it was opening weekend. Because I was alone in the theater. But, uh, but, uh, <laughs> uh, and feeling that whole world kind of turn in, in, on the big format was incredible. It, right. it loses a lot on the small screen. Um. The memory warehouse, the Stephen King staple mm -hmm. here, um, that we got to the memory files we got to play with. Right, it's a dream catcher. Dream catcher. Um, no shit weasels though. You avoided that, but we got the memory warehouse. No deadits. They they uh, they made me take the shit weasels out. You know. <laughs> <laughs> there, that was, there, those were other members of the uh, true knot that we never saw. Her with the um, no eyes is such a great effect. Yeah, she looks great and. Uh, that was Kylie's idea was to tie it to the anime uh, Ruby character. Right. Um, and uh, I think it was a great idea. Her, her is that disguise. Where that, yeah. Is that where that uh, came from? Was from, from her being a fan of Ruby? Cause I, I worked at Brewster teeth whenever this came out actually. And I remember them being like all super excited that, that they had the, uh, they gave the clearance or whatever. So you see Ruby posters and stuff all over her room. Yep. That was all Kylie. She, she suggested it. We loved it. And, yeah. um, my nieces and nephews love that shit. Yeah. They, uh, like in, you know, uh, uh, they know what I do for a living and, um, know that my job is to like talk to famous people and you know, that I'm involved with movie stuff and whatever. They don't give a shit. But when they found out that I worked for four or five months at rooster teeth, just doing like punch up for them, uh, they lost their minds. They were like, oh, my God, that's where Ruby is made. Like they were mm -hmm. like, finally, they were impressed with something I had done and I had never seen it. So I, <laughs> I was like, yeah, dude, it's cool. Like there's stuff all over. Like I, I had no idea what I was talking about. Yeah, I had a similar experience, but it was my nephews could give a shit of like, oh, I met Robert Downey Jr. I've done all this. And they're like, OK, cool. Iron Man, whatever. But when I said that I worked with Gavin, who was in Slow Mo Guys, part of Slow Mo Guys, they were just like mind blown. Like, oh, my God, the these are like the biggest. Slow Mo Guys. 
It's the, uh, it was like an offshoot. I guess it's not really part of Rooster Teeth, but he worked at Rooster Teeth and, but he was the star mm. of this sh- YouTube show called Slow Mo Guys, where he would take, uh, um, you know how they do that slow motion, super duper f- slow motion, like in the beginning of the Sherlock Holmes movies and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like he sh- actually helped like shoot those things because he has this camera that can go crazy slow mo. And so they'll, they'll like blow things up in slow motion. But yeah, anyway, yes, the same, same diff. Uh, we missed some, um, uh, hand, hand trauma. trauma. Yep. Hand trauma. <laughs> I, I was I waiting get all for the that. shit for the hand trauma, and it's like, no, that's that's in the book. Um, what you yeah, need I, is a monologue yeah. about hand trauma, and then you will yes. then you will open the Flanagan Stargate. Peak Flanagan. Um, it's funny. I'm not even really into the hand trauma. We, uh, you know, the the Gerald's game was prescribed. This was prescribed, and then the the Hush one uh, was because Hush was in a lot of ways my dry run for Gerald's game. Hmm. Um, but yeah, it, it's a. It isn't really something now. Now I kind of do it because people expect it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, dead cats, some fucked up things with hands. Dead you cats, and the new ninety degree the, camera. You show. and the new Resident Evil games just love terrorizing people's hands. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a neat bit that I I remember reading it. The cycling effect when they die mm. in the book, and I was like, "How the fuck are we going to do this?" Um, and it's another one that you know we we tried dozens of iterations to try to come up with something and there used to be like this little insect creature inside of him that like when he went transparent you could see the true form of the true knot underneath there Hmm. and we ended up taking it out because it it just it was very confusing Hmm. and it looked kind of men in black Um, right now this is what kind of what kind of insect did he look like he looked like a mantis um like we were kind of going for that dandelion thing again um And uh, so we were, we were trying to kind of tie it more into, into the Dandelo bit from book seven of Dark Tower. And so he had this kind of mantis waspy form that was underneath the human skeleton. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but it, it got difficult to see and, and very difficult to understand. So instead, we just went for the different, very subtle layers of like musculature and blood vessels and, and bones and just tried to kind of phase him gently in and out of physical existence. Um, and I, think I think this, this scene is in yeah. its own way, just as heartbreaking as the, the baseball boy scene. It's I, I thought it I know was he's a bad tragic. guy, but yeah. like just being a fan of Carl's screen presence, it's just sad to see him like this. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that speech well, and- that she gives is so fucking great. <clears throat> the um the idea that the the you know for for these immortal powerful beings to be so past their prime and you know these are the stakes for them much much like we wanted this to be as horrible as as the baseball boy from an experiential point of view for him just right. so that it, that it, there it felt like there was balance to it but um but then you know the having them all descend on him afterward was uh also, like, yeah, they're, except you notice Rebecca doesn't participate. Hmm. Hmm. Rebecca, in, in the moment, said she felt too much reverence for him to uh, to dive in. It works. Yep. Um, oh, Billy. <laughs> we really. Who's that, uh, a, who's that a tattoo of on his arm? Uh, I, it's supposed to be his daughter. Gotcha. Um, and he had these stories. Um, like Cliff had come up with all sorts of backstory for Billy and about his time 
in prison and all sorts of stuff uh, that, that he had kind of baked into it. Um, that of course you just, it only exists as his preparation, but um, is really thorough work. And he would show up to work on days like this, where it's like, you just have to be asleep in the passenger <laughs> scene while they do the scene. And he was a great sport always. Um, See that I could do. I'm not an actor, but I think if I was called upon to look like I was sleeping through a scene where you and McGregor's driving around and I think, I think I could pull that off. We're doing a, a LED screens around the car on a stage to pull that off, which, you know, Kubrick did rear projection mm-hmm. um, on a stage as well. He built the, uh, the car that drives up the mountain pass was in the middle of the Colorado lounge with a screen behind it when he shot mm-hmm. it. And so we, we did a similar thing, but with, with the uh, LED technology. Um, and this is on the same stage we built the, uh, the overlook on. Um, oh man. See stuff like that on the days when like we, we were framing the <clears> typewriter <throat> was when I'd feel the most like, yeah. Like I was just a kid who lucked into getting to go on this ride of a movie. Fuck yeah. You were dude. Yeah. Sorry. Those beeps are my uh, kids going in and out of the house. <laughs> um, yeah, so Ewan and <laughs> yeah, there they go. They're gone. Uh, Ewan and um, Kylie really had a terrific bond as as actors together. Like he really sparked to her, and likewise. And this was when it was like, oh, it becomes the Dan and Abra movie, and mm-hmm. the two of them together on set every day um, were really delightful. And it was like oh, more hand trauma. Look at her rotten fingers. <laughs> um, uh, this is another scene that got really gutted for the theatrical, um, but it was kind of, you know, Crow and, and Rose were meant to be a direct echo of um, Billy and Dan. Hmm. And, um, you know, it, it, Billy and Dan are both recovered addicts who, you know, give each other strength um, in sobriety and Rose and Crow are both, you know, um, both utterly kind of spiraling addicts who fuel each other and, and, you know, enable each other's addiction. And um, so I always liked kind of doing, bouncing back and forth between those relationships, but studio. I also liked this bit because it gets into some of the book stuff about the true not having connections with governments and law enforcement and security agencies and like using their money Mm -hmm. to cover their tracks and be able to do what they do. Right. But, um, but yeah, they it's too long, too long of a movie. It, speaking of, I mean, this might be a good opportunity to jump in and talk about the, uh, the, just the director's cut on the whole, like, you yeah. know, because it's, it's structured fairly different. This isn't just like, okay, we added in a scene. So now we know, you know, that the T one, wow, the T 1000 found John Connor, you know, in this one, one area where you just assumed he just showed up. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, this is a fairly structurally, it, it, this movie's impacted structurally by, by the director's cut. Um, so like how, what was that process like? Like, what was the, this, was this the cut that you turned into the studios or was this like the, the, your ideal version of the movie and you, like, okay, this is what my final vision would be on this, even though I know you want something a little bit shorter. Well, they, um, this was, so this is the script, basically. This, okay. th- this cut is exactly the script. Um, and they knew very early 
you know, the, we, they were letting us shoot a long script and they knew they wanted it. They were like, there's no way we'll go a minute over two and a half hours. Right. And I was like, there's no way this script comes in under three. And so when we were doing the assembly early on, I'd probably cut about half the movie this way and with these chapters and everything. And, and it, you said novelistic earlier. That's what I wanted this to be. I wanted right. it to feel like reading a book. And um, they kind of came in and, and could do the math. And they're like, well, you know, we're, we're at midpoint and it's an hour and a half. You know, you're not going to you're not going to make it. So why don't you keep doing your cut? And as we negotiate, you know, edits and take things out, keep those things intact in, in your director's cut and we'll release that cut as well. Sorry, it sounds like my kids are having a, a yeah, uh, tremblay come over. Moment down there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> having a true not moment in the background. And Captured forever. Trying to fix it herself. Um, but uh, so they, they let me kind of keep that cut running concurrently with the theatrical. And it made it easier when they'd say, we want to lose this scene about the earthquake or we want to lose that. Because I'd be like, okay, well, I just kick it over to the other cut. And it, it, it lives on. Um, but they were committed to releasing the director's cut from the beginning of post. And again, I think there's a little bit of, you know, it, it, <laughs> it hubris in that, but um, they, they supported it at every turn. It, to me, like th this is um, this cut is what it felt like for me to read the book. And um it's my preferred version of the movie by a, by a lot, but yeah. it, it isn't just about, like you said, it, it's structural and it's experiential. It's, it's just a different movie. Um, everything else, the, the theatrical feels very truncated to me, but. Well, definitely in comparison <laughs> yeah. to, to, to this. Um, um, so this is them digging up fake of Tremblay. Um, fake up, fake up Tremblay. Yep, little fake up. Uh, it was a Bob Kurtzman creation. Really grotesque little. Uh, they used a life cast of Jacob, and they just destroyed it. Um, and then we buried it. And Bob was disappointed that all of the work he did opening up the chest cavity. I mean, it looked like a. He said it looked like a a turkey um, after Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> Christ. And uh, it did. And then he was like, "Oh, it's all covered up. You don't really see anything, but like." you know, the tip of his hand and you see his, his face, you don't see that big open chest cavity. I was like, yeah, we couldn't, we couldn't take it. And why would they keep digging? Yeah. <laughs> like, why would they, we, we got to make sure you open that up too. Um, but this was stuff. I, I remember watching you and, and Cliff do this, um, like the, the dry heaving and everything else that they brought to it. It made us feel sick at the monitor. Mm. Like it's really upsetting stuff. Well, that effect is ridiculous. I know that it's a small thing, but like when they're clearing the dirt and like you see the lip bounce, I don't know what it is. I guess it just yeah. reads as authentic to me. Like it doesn't feel like a, a dummy or, you know, a thing that just feels like they found a dead kid. Yeah. Um, and there's just something even more disturbing about that, which is way less graphic than like seeing the li lifeless uh, Tremblay, you know, before. I, I don't know. I don't know why it got to me, but uh, but it got to me. It worked. When I think for to motivate, we we would talk about we need Dan and Billy to like pick up guns and shoot these people that they've right. never seen before, and the only way to motivate that was to have that visceral encounter with with the body. Right. Um, like, otherwise, it was really tough to believe that they would 
they would do that on kind of the the that Billy would go along with Dan because he's like, hey, pal, there's magic vampires in the world and we, we got to do something. <laughs> yeah, he's having to take a lot on on uh, faith here. Um, and it's something that I think it's in the director's cut, maybe and not the theatrical, too, where when Abra's father confronts them about that and he essentially goes are you sure it's not your buddy that that put that kid in the ground because that would you know maybe that's a cynical like murder podcast <laughs> uh listener in me you know that that uh that would have been my first thought is like this i'd buy that more than a guy's talking to a imaginary girl you know in the back seat that i can't see and he's trying to confess something i love this house by the way Sick yeah house. it is beautiful um and we just found it in the neighborhood in atlanta Last minute, I I'd picked a, a different house and uh, Trevor Macy, my producer, was like that. The house you picked is not nearly cinematic enough. And so, so what he, do you do? You like go up and knock on the door and you're like, hey. Yeah. You film your <laughs> house. In, in that market, they're really used to it. They're like, all right, how many days? How, you know, how long are you shutting down? Are you doing <laughs> night for night? Where are you putting the condors? Like they, they're, they're used to <laughs> How production. are you handling the Kubrick stuff? Yeah. <laughs> uh, tell me about the baseball boy. Yeah. They're very, um, they're really production savvy. Uh, but they were, they were very, very good to us. The neighbors, I remember, were not happy we were there. Is this the um, interior? This is the interior of that house. Yes. We used the whole nice location. Nice house, too. Yeah. Really beautiful house. Um, Did they not mind you throwing spoons all over the floor earlier on? They didn't. They let us drop the spoons. Um, and we had a big rig with, with real spoons and we, there was a trigger you pulled and it released them all at once and they just crashed and we got away with it. Do the, this is, I don't know, maybe it's a dumb question, but like if, if you rent out your house to a production like that, like, are they hanging out and watching you shoot or do they just disappear for the day and be like, we'll be back once you've cleaned all this shit up. Yeah. We, we put them up for, um, I think we, we shot a few days in there. So they were up, they were out of there for about a week because we have to get in ahead of time and rig it and light it and, dress it uh take out any any art or anything that isn't cleared by the production sure so like that's their house but everything in there is ours and Mm. um so we we usually don't want homeowners to be there while that happens because they would be like what are you doing uh so we we put them up in a real nice hotel and tell them to come back when we're done i think they came back one night when ewan was there because they wanted to meet ewan mcgregor sure and we we kind of threw that in to help close the deal it's like of course you can come back and watch monitor and you can shake hands with the UN. Um, but, uh, just don't mention star Wars unless you're a child. Just don't. Yeah. Unless you're a child, uh, yeah. he, he, he won't maybe want to talk to star Wars too much. Although, you know, now that he's, he's fully back in that world with Obi-Wan. I'm, I'm curious. I want to, I want to ask him about it now, but, um, <laughs> you should, uh, but this was always stuff. Um, you know, Oh, that glove. I remember we tried to find that glove. It disappeared when we mm. wrapped. We couldn't find it. Um, I didn't take it. It wasn't me. <laughs> it's, it's funny, those hero, hero props. You know, there's a whole market for that. But um, I know there are. Yeah. I wish I, was, uh, I had enough money to, <laughs> to dive, <laughs> dive into them. I, I've, been, I've been in it myself for about a year now, doing auctions and buying stuff. And I'm mm-hmm. buying stuff for my own productions. Like, it's, uh, it's, it's a crazy world. But I'll tell wait, you, I buying remember stuff from other productions for years. No, mm-hmm. I, I I've been tracking down some of my own stuff. Oh, like I see pieces from Haunting or Gerald's Game and stuff in Doctor Sleep that are out there on the market. That's so I, I try to get them back. Yeah, um, that's nice. Yeah, 
I remember like uh, there was a while ago when the original axe from the shining yeah. was, uh, was up for, for sale. And I think, I think Lee Unkrich got it. Um, that would make it, sense. Yeah. So and that uh, should have it. I think it's Lee. <laughs> So, but I've yeah. I've also and I, this is my time to brag is um uh, in a lot of my uh, New Zealandy stuff, uh, Peter Jackson's a big buyer of props and he bought he has one of the original Nicholson jackets from The Shining mm-hmm. so I got to wow. I got to hold and touch the fabric and and all that yeah and uh, it's perfect it's tiny it's tiny it's small he's not i remember guy. you like w- one of the first times you and i really talked at length eric I mean, we were on an airplane i think and you were showing me all the pictures from that mm-hmm. trip that prop house yeah, yeah. He's got, and i remember he's it got... is small and I, I it just made me think of wonder boys when they're looking at <laughs> yeah, marilyn, marilyn monroe's Monroe. jacket and they're like <laughs> she was so yeah. small oh a uh, fun <laughs> trivia here you can the audio of the car transitioning from the road to the bridge um, mm. is the audio of Danny's trike transitioning from the floor to the carpet huh. in the, huh. uh, in the hotel. We, we distorted it a little bit, but you can hear the, hear the, the trike sequence. Hey, sound he is driving. Goes. So yeah. it's, it's apt big shootout sequence coming here, which is not yeah. a thing you commonly see in a Mike Flanagan film. No. And, um, <clears throat> And well, especially now, I don't think you'll ever see again. Not like this. Yeah, I was wondering, um, you know, that's that's kind of what I'm getting to is. uh, Do you think you'll ever use guns again on a set? I I don't know. I don't want to. Yeah, yeah, I I I wouldn't. Oh, we'll never use a real gun on the set again. No, right, right. Um, But I mean, we could use prop guns with muzzle blasts, but I, I it's hard to to need a gun in a story. And you can't help but kind of glamorize guns in a movie. There's almost no way to do it another way unless you're making a movie about, you know, the misuse of guns. Um, But, uh, you know, we'll never, in my production, we'll never use a a, a real firearm again. And, um, you know, these were were quarter loads and a lot of weapons at once. And it's like, I, I think back to this and it's like, I'm really... We had a wonderful, I mean, phenomenal armorist and a, and a great safety department and great ADs. Right. Like we we were we were exhaustive in our protocols for the weapons. So I, I, but I, I think back on these days and it's like we didn't need to use the quarter loads. We could have done it with VFX. You know, we really could have. So I saw someone on Twitter the other day saying like, you know, you want a million idea dollar idea, go out there and create a gun that will. <clears throat> look screen accurate will provide actual kickback for the actors mm-hmm. you know so it feels and operates like a real gun but it just doesn't shoot anything and you just add in muzzle blasts afterwards and uh, a couple of days after that i saw someone else posting a link to some company that actually created that like some years ago mm-hmm. and was right. looking for investors on it and i'm thinking those guys are probably doing pretty well right now <laughs> yeah and it's that's the only excuse for using it is you want the kickback, the actors want it to feel real. Mm-hmm. You want them to react to something, to flinch, to see the, you know, to see it all happen. And this is a huge sequence for that. Like we, yeah, we, a lot of, a lot going on here. A huge amount. Uh, it took us days to do it. We, it was three days of just this. And, um, uh, and it was like, you know, we shoot somebody like Matt just got hit from the wrong direction. He actually turned into the shot instead of away, but it's the only one we mm-hmm. got. Cause to re-squib him takes 20 minutes. Right. And we were, we were racing the light always. Um, 
but yeah, huge, huge shootout. It was, it was real fun to do. And, and like I said, we were always very safe and the cast was, was, was always safe. Crew was always protected, but we would do it completely differently in the future. If we, if we had to, oh, my daughter just popped in. Kate Siegel, ladies and gentlemen. Hi. Hi, sweetheart. My daughter's dressed as a princess. Aw, beautiful. Oh, she's a sun man. <laughs> bye bye. Cameo by Kate Siegel and Theodora Flanagan. Uh, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna look back on this in ten years and go, man, like where did that that uh, adorable little girl go? I got a surly teenager now. Yeah, there, it's already happening too fast. My oldest is eleven, oh. and I'm just like, how the hell did that happen? But um, but yeah. Uh, so this is a this is another scene right out of the book that was not one of the most popular scenes in the book. There were, there was a lot of like, oh, it just it boiled down to a shootout and that took out right. you know took out the true knot except for right. a few of them. And so the difference was um, we really wanted there to be uh, victories on the true knot side that like it, it would only feel like this this was earned if they struck blows as well. Right. And that's why we said we had to, you know, we got to take out, I think in the book, they, they successfully knock out Billy. They like inject his neck and knock him unconscious. Right. Because he's, he's guarding Abra. And I think it was um, Abra's dad who was here with, uh, with Dan, but it was like, no, we're going to kill, we're going to kill Billy and we're going to kill her dad. So that the true knot is actually formidable. I can't believe Emily, uh, Emily Allen Lind is, 17 in this yeah yep lies beyond her years very very much plays beyond her age for sure um oh that's uh, so upsetting sad yep and right about there i think is when i i remember talking to steve he was like right right at about the shootout was when it occurred to me you were you were steering the car off the road (laughs) <laughs> like of, of what, what Dr. Sleep was. And I think that's right. where a lot of the fans who up until this point had a really faithful adaptation had to go like, Oh shit. Um, and, uh, and then of course this, the one scene I regret taking out of the theatrical is this one with, um, with Zahn and Zach, uh, mm-hmm. this, this little confrontation here. I really right. like it. Um, I think both the guys did a great job and I really like the quiet arrogance of Zahn. And when right. he refers to himself as a God and it's like, Oh, I, I, this explained the true knot to me in a really visceral way. Um, to, just to loop back a, a second to Cliff Curtis's death there. I think the way you shoot that is really interesting that it's, you don't you see part part of the shot but not the the full thing and you could have cut away from it entirely it's got a messy quality to it yeah. that reminds me of um the way uh, I'm going to get your head real big right here uh Spielberg shot the opening of Saving Private Ryan where there's things sort of happening not entirely in frame and that sells the violence even more because it feels as though it's actually happening and the camera is right. just capturing what it's capturing, but it, they're not like hero shots. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, it's you, you frame for you and you don't frame right, for the exactly. for the for the wound. Um and that was that was the, you know, what makes the moment land is is Ewan's face and the blood hitting him. And it's like that that's the reaction you want. And then we could cut back to see Cliff on the ground and we had, I think, messed with one of his eyes digitally to kind of make it look really gnarly. But yeah. Um It's a great detail. It it really sells it for sure. The the little eye the blood vessels in the eye all burst and everything. Yeah. Yeah. But but very sad and, and also kind of put of us at the, at the point with with the book that it was like the true not never actually except for the baseball boy, they never kill anyone else in the book. Yeah. And it was tough to kind of keep them monstrous when you see them thwarted by mere mortals. So it really felt like it was a necessary a necessary loss for Dan and Abra that we we needed to do that. Um, also so that we, there were all these reversals in it. It was like, yes. And now they've got the upper hand and Zahn gets to shine with his own little mini monologue and, you know, we can be helpless. Um, and he's, he's just a terrific, terrific performer. (laughs) I love the way he holds, he holds this, this frame and how confident and quiet he is about his menace is really something. Um, the uh, background that you see through the windows mm-hmm. here is the exact background you see when they're driving to Hill House in episode uh, eight. The <laughs> we just reused the plate. Um, it's interesting to imagine. I mean, this is deep, deep nerd shit that I'm about to say here. So apologies, but I'd be curious to see the true not interacting with, say, <clears throat> the guys that run Algol Ciento in the Dark Tower. You know, they're yeah. they're using these kids to break down the beams that are holding the tower in place, whereas these people are like they're after the same kids, but for a different reason. I think it'd be yeah. it'd be interesting to see those. Yeah, uh, there's a story in Stephen King's story where yeah. <laughs> the true knots fighting against the low men for for, for talented <laughs> kids. Yeah, stop. <laughs> stop using our food. Um. <laughs> <laughs> That's the reason why they've been disappearing for so many. Yeah. Like, over the last 30 years, they've been taken by the breaking. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There you um, go. I think we cracked it. I love it. that. We figured it out. Uh, but, this is another scene that Ewan identified as one of the reasons he wanted to do the movie. Right. Um, and it's one of those that, you know, on the, on the page, and he throws the bottle and smashes it. I was like, oh, boy. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, maybe that happens off, off screen. He throws it out of screen and you hear it break, but Ewan, Ewan could sell it. Um, this was Halloween, actually, uh, I believe. There's a second second half of Halloween, so I'm just off camera in his <laughs> eyeline, dressed as David S. Pumpkins, <laughs> while he's doing this beautiful work. Um, no wonder he was looking at you like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's like, buddy, I got to have a whole fucking breakthrough right here, and you're dressed in this suit? Uh, this is the lowest tech effect in the whole shot. We just tilted the camera. Star Star Trek style, and there's a rope connected to Ewan, and we pulled him across the floor into the wall, uh, and did the old, you know, the Enterprise has been hit by a torpedo camera thing. <laughs> right. It works. And it works. And he said on the time, he's like, "This is the dumbest thing. Like, you guys couldn't build a gimbal." And we were like, "I just think it's gonna work." And I showed it to him on playback. He's like, "Fuck it, it worked." Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, really low tech there. 
we had we had completely run out of budget because we blew it all on the uh, rose flying scene. So, <laughs> um, uh, and then we did you know fun tricks here where Ewan came in and performed this scene with Zahn himself, mm-hmm. and Kylie watched him. And then uh, he tagged her in and she came in and did her best impression of Ewan's best impression of her imitating him. And um, (laughs) it was, uh, it was really, really, really fun. But one of those things where it's like, Oh, he didn't even have to do that, but he, he did that for Kylie. And I think she does a really lovely job and it calls back our, uh, our eye color thing. Again, she has blue eyes now. She has Ewan's eyes. Hmm. And, um, I like the little, dis- it's like the first time his, uh, his confident exteriors cracked there, the, just a little eye shot that he yeah. throws into the rear view. Yep. And Zahn said right here, he said, it's good to meet you. Um, Zahn said in the day, he was like, and that's when I knew I was dead. Hmm. Um, which is, I think, a, a, a terrific choice. And you watch him kind of go through the rest of the motions. But he takes a long beat there. And he said, I, I figured out right there that I was toast. Um, but yeah, it was, it was one of the rare projects where like every, every actor got to have their kind of moment in the spotlight. And this was, this was the one he was excited about. It's sort of the, um, since you said that, uh, the thing I don't really get about the, uh, you know, the japes that have come your way about the monologuing. Yeah. That's, you know, not, not only is the writing good, but also you're, you're getting to see these actors really flex, you know, and on top of all that, it's, you know, delivering heart to the story. Like fucking, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. I, I, that's one criticism I, I ignore because it's like, there there are others you, you want to take into account. You always want to be better. Right. Sure. And, And, um, but that's one whenever it pops up and people are like, oh, the monologue. And it's like, yeah, that you're wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like that's Does one of the everything have to be like, edited within an inch of yeah. its life for you to pay attention? Like fucking sit and listen. Yeah. It's like the and I blame, you know, it used to be such an art form in, in television and in cinema mm-hmm. to see an actor really take on a monologue and really, really make it make it beautiful. And I blame this kind of McDonald's attention span that, you know. Yeah that we've whittled ourselves down to where it's like to sit and listen to someone talk for a minute becomes a chore. And I, I just think that's more about the viewer. Um, mm-hmm. So that that's the only area everywhere else. I try to be wide open and, and humble and willing to learn and improve. And the monologues I'll die on that hill, like all the way, <laughs> all the way to the end of time. Um, it's like, that's a, it's a dying art form and I'm glad to be able to play with it. Uh, as well, you should. Yeah, I love the shot here. By the way, coming up of uh, of Rose with her fucking glowing eyes and the mist behind it. It's like it's a hammer horror shot almost. And you can see through her midsection as she approaches. We made her translucent. Mm. You can see just just barely yeah. through her. Um, I love the shot too. And and Rebecca, you know, it's a, this was the first time I think those actors ever met. Um we've been working for months and we had Kylie and Rebecca on the same, you know, on the same set. Uh, and that's the road right outside the true not camp. We were just all in the same little run of road. 
Um, uh, bitch child. Bitch child. Yeah, that <laughs> Rebecca just just chewed on that line, and she would use it for the rest of the show. Like I'd be like. <laughs> Uh, to to all of us, it'd be like, uh, hey, Rebecca, I'm going to need you to come in a little earlier tomorrow. We're, we're going to force your call half an hour. I hope it's cool. She's like, all right, bitch, child. Hand trauma. Yeah, there's the story reason for it. So you can visualize that she's grown super strong now for this final confrontation. Um, I remember shooting this day very well um, because uh, this this day was October uh, 18th. Um, this was the day The Haunting of Hill House launched. Mm. And we went from this shoot at The Sun's Going Down. We all went back to watch uh, The Haunting that night. Nice. Um, and uh, one of our, yeah. Um, we I wasn't even present for all these plate units. They did all, all the aerials. I would send notes and get the footage and send more notes and they'd go up with another drone and we try to stitch it all together. We did that long after we had wrapped the show. Right. Um, Again, part of the Kubrick cinematic language, right? Cause the, you can't, you can't do this any driving <laughs> in a shining uh, sequel and not have those like just overhead long Kubrick uh, helicopter yeah, shots or whatever. They are required. Shots. Yep. Yeah. Um, and we're building up, of course, to, you know, by this point writing, I was giddy because it was like, I know where we're going. Right. Mm-hmm. And we're going to say just enough in the, in the dialogue to tell everyone where we're going. There's nothing left. You know, there's no other safe harbor. We're going to go back to the overlook. And we've waited, you know, hours to get there at this point. Um, and uh, recreating that drive and getting the Berlioz score. There's like, this is where we're bringing the score in. Uh, when we when we get to the gas station, mm-hmm. um, w- this is where we had the most kind of anticipation on set because uh, we saved the overlook for last. We 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 shot all the stuff ahead of time and and ended on the overlook uh, so that we all had the same feeling the cast did of like gradually approaching it and then finally just being in there. Um, but uh, but yeah, we're about to transition into you know all overlook all the time and Mm -hmm. that is a series of sets we built in atlanta on three different stages um using kubrick's original blueprints and uh one of which i one of which i still have um but uh yeah we 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 got to physically reconstruct it and move through it and um some of the fun was finding out that like the blueprints that he approved for the overlook didn't match what he had in the movie. Hmm. I was going to ask about this. I bring it up every time we talk about the shining on this show. Uh, Cause I think it's one of the more fascinating elements of the shining. Um, the impossible geometry of the mm-hmm. overlook. Have you ever seen any video essays about that or read anything about this? Oh yes. We, we dove deep into that world. And um, so yeah. you, it, having seen the actual blueprints, like do you, do you believe that's the case? You do you think that he was intentionally fucking with people with the layout of the overlook? Um I think it was equal parts because of the physical restrictions of his stages, which was a real thing. Like he had to alter his plans to reflect the realities of the sound stages he was on. Um and I, I think he didn't mind fucking with people. 
but there's mm-hmm. stuff like, you know, the bathroom window opens up into a hallway. Mm. Like right. it, it just does. And that is either he didn't care or he liked that it didn't make sense. And I can't yeah. tell because there's some stuff I know he did. I know he did it because the blueprints were too large to fit the stage plan and there were stairs there. So that's why there are stairs in the Torrance residence when they walk mm. up. That was built into the stage. Um, this, so, this shot real quick is fucking so good. And I remember I was at, I told you before I was at the test screening or a test screening for this movie. And there was, I remember that shot very specifically the gliding over the water shot mm-hmm. uh, here with the full shining score mm-hmm. going on and the crowd just erupted in applause. Yeah. Well, and, these are the, those are the three shots right there that are yeah. Kubrick's shots. We, we altered them to make them nighttime and to add the snow, but the Island and the two overheads of the car, Mm-hmm. are the only footage from The Shining that we used in the film. That's, that's interesting. Them. Even the bloody elevators, which we're getting to, are not not his. Uh, we, we built those. Um, but yeah, I, I remember that same test screening. So we would have been there together because I went to yeah, all Yeah, no, I, I'm pretty sure I saw you. I think I was yeah. a few rows behind you. But uh, we didn't know each other then, so I didn't want to bug you, especially Aww. if I didn't like the movie. Well, yeah, <laughs> because I saw you before. It. If you didn't like the movie, I really appreciate you not uh, not pointing it out. But um, I I I loved those test screenings and talking to the crowd after right. afterward and meeting fans, and I loved hearing the the reaction to the Shining stuff. Um, which of course I remember made the studio say, "Can we get the overlook in in the first hour?" Mm. <laughs> Like, oh, because of that reaction. Because of, that of reaction. all this exciting. Yeah, they're like, bring that, move that way up. End of Act One, and I was like, I, no, like that's that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, but this was all on a soundstage, so all this that looks exterior is all interior. Um, and uh, built on a stage uh, at Black Hall Studios and fake snow and, and the whole nine yards. But we we would sit there and look at this. You know, it took up the whole the whole stage wall. I mean, yeah. And just behind it is uh, I have my little edit station just out of frame. I would sit there in between <laughs> shots and and work on rough cuts of scenes. So rad. Um, this stuff. Uh, I mean, this was this was our set, and I remember the pitch to Steve about you know he has to wake it up and he's just going to take a walk. Um, and all I wanted to hear was, you know, ominous drones and weather. I just wanted wind and silence. And, um, it's some of my favorite stuff in the movie and some of the, the, a lot, a lot of my stuff you don't need to see in a theater. Like most of my stuff is perfectly designed to see at home. This sequence of him walking through the hotel and it waking up Mm -hmm. play is very different in a movie theater. Um, than it does it at home. But, um, well, those spaces just feel more cavernous. Yeah. You know, and the sound, like you're really immersed in the sound design, which is really, really wonderful. And, um, and we would spend so much time comparing, you know, photographs and screen grabs and stuff from Kubrick's film and, and holding it up next to every little element that we'd built. Um, and from here on out, I mean, we kind of hijacked this to do The Shining right. um, and to do the, to the book. And, but, it's, uh, yeah. and it's very close. Like I, I, I've seen The Shining a couple of times since seeing Dr. Sleep. And like, I don't think I understood how 
close that boiler room was until I was revisiting the, the 4k shining, uh, uh, disc. And I was just like, Oh shit. Like you, cause you see Wendy go in there and it is exactly the same. It's, uh, uh, I didn't appreciate how well the boiler room was is what I'm saying, Mike. And now I do. Oh, thank you. <laughs> we, we had this phenomenon, I, I think that you're describing too, where we would find frequently that we remembered the shining wrong. Mm. And a lot of us would be like, Oh, that doesn't match. And then I'd pull up the movie and be like, Oh no, it does. Like that. That's weird. It, it, it exists slightly different in all of our memories and imaginations. But, um, this was the first piece of the set we'd built was the, uh, we call it the twins hallway. Mm. Um, and, uh, all this stuff of having the, the, the pops of the light, you know, letting the, the structure itself provide the scares and the sound design, like some of my favorite stuff. And Ewan would show up and, and I'd be like, all right, you're just walking from here to here to here. And he's acting his heart out on the walk, you know? Um, like he, he's as committed to exploring the space as he would be to a monologue. (laughs) Um, there's where the steps should be and we don't have them there. Hmm. They would have cost us something like $20,000 to elevate the set. So one of our big continuity issues is, uh, there's no stairs there and (laughs) Kubrick only put them in because they were part of the soundstage he was on. Um, I think we're also missing, uh, there's a piece of furniture we're missing in that room that I'm embarrassed about. Um, you should be. It's it's yeah. really upsetting. I really fucked it up. And yeah. uh, in The Shining, both of those panels are missing from the door. By the mm. time Jack abandons it, he they'd cut right. both panels out. But we all, to a person, remembered it as being only one. Right. Yeah, so do I. Um, but it, it really is, it's both when we, we had to go back and prove it to ourselves, but, uh, because we all remembered it as one, we left it as, as one. Um, and then back there was, uh, Alex Esso, of course, doing that incredible recreation of Shelley Duvall in the corner. Chuck Borden, our stunt coordinator is chopping through the, uh, through the door. And I believe on her last take, I'm the one who pokes my head in, um, (laughs) I was going to say, I'm surprised you're not the one doing the axe. I would have been like, I want this job. Oh, uh, we just passed the Oculus mirror. Um, Oh, shit. You can't see it anymore. But as he he started this walk in the hallway, it was hanging on the right-hand side. Mm. Um, And it's covered up now by the the structure of the hall. It's fitting that it would find a home here. I thought, you know, that was a cheat, but it was one worth making. (laughs) Uh, And so here we're still just, you know trying to stitch together all of the areas we were able to rebuild all building up to this scene. And this scene is what turned King around on the over. Right. And, uh, I described it to him, um, in pretty great detail and it all boiled down to, there's a, an empty glass waiting for him. He sits just like Jack did. And this, you know, the, the, uh, the bartender, the familiar bartender comes in and he looks up and it's his dad and they talk about drinking and his dad refuses to acknowledge who he is and just yeah. um, does the full Delbert Grady. And, um, and that's, that's what did it. And we're, you know, we're directly quoting the shots and the framing and everything else here to try to just recreate as best we can all of that. I remember gripping the armrests during the scene. The first time I saw it in the theater. 
it's, it's it, it, you know, you talk about a high wire act. This is like, you are putting yourself in such danger doing this. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? Like, it's, yes. this is a fucking stunt and a half what you were pulling off here. And it's so quiet and hypnotic. The, the rhythm of the dialogue, like you could have heard a pin drop in that fucking theater. Yeah. And right there, everybody either, either is thrilled or is like, fuck you. <laughs> I don't, I, I can't imagine there'd be a lot of fuck yous because you've already established that these people aren't going to look exactly like, you know, their, their previous counterparts and the hair is right. The eyebrows are right. You mm-hmm. know, there's only the one Jack Nicholson face, good. you know, but He's he's doing it and he's not doing a Jack impression either, which is is key, I think. No, he's playing Lloyd. And that's yeah. what I loved. It was like mm-hmm. play Lloyd and let Jack just be a little little flavor of Jack here and there toward the end. But otherwise, play sprinkling Lloyd of Jack. Yep. <laughs> um, Ewan and Henry, uh, you know, I, I these are two actors I adore and Henry's family at this point for me. Um this was just one of those days on set where that reverence and the quiet, we all just sat back and watched these guys act. And um, I think Ewan is heartbreaking in this. And I think Henry's on, you know, a high wire. He embodies the high wire of the whole movie for the seven minutes he's doing this. And, um, but it all, it works for me because it's all about what Ewan is doing and what he's saying. And, you know, the bravery of it. Yeah. It's the heart of the movie and, and the heart of the character. And this for me, no matter what happened after this, this conversation between them is kind of, you know, what what is the Torrance family story about? Right. If not totally finally getting this moment. So um it, yeah. And it's yeah. And it's one that doesn't exist in the book. And and uh and he but you get a you get a, sh- a shadow of of that in the in the the novel because in the novel it is like uh, Jack Torrance gets a moment of heroism in yeah. a weird way but uh in uh, he doesn't Jack Torrance doesn't get a heroic moment here or some where he recognizes like who he was and all that but what you do get is you you get the similar sense of closure with Danny right yeah. mm-hmm. where where he's he's faced faced his father you know and uh and face this challenge. And like I was, I keep mentioning all throughout this commentary track, how he's routinely put in the same situations as his father up to this very important point. Cause you can argue that in the, the Kubrick movie of the shining, this is the point where Jack fully um, gives, gives into the overlook. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yep. And, and this is the temptation that he is being offered by the, you know, in a even more insidious way because it's his father who he still, has a five-year-old's love for, you know, deep down in his heart and, you know, and not, not a, uh, you know, a bartender named, named Lloyd, you know, this is, this is even more insidious and gross from uh, a manipulation standpoint from, from the hotel. Yeah. And, and he, and he passes the test that his father couldn't. How much rehearsal went into this scene? They did one dry run of the first few lines and they both wanted to save it, save the powder for the, for the take. No shit. Yep. So I didn't know what was going to happen on the first. The first one we did is the profile two shot. Mm-hmm. And then we went in for coverage. But that's the first time. And what was neat was on the day in the in the at the monitors, Alex Esso is there. Um, Jocelyn Donahue is there. 
they just wanted to see what Henry would do. Yeah. And um, Alex had not met Henry and she was playing Wendy, but she wanted to see him, you know, see what, see what Jack was. And uh, they fell in love on that movie. They're still together. No shit. Henry and Alex. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think, uh, I think I would have gotten really emotional watching this being filmed. It was, it was very powerful. It, um, I'll tell you, it had a lot to do. Uh, I got sober right after this movie. Mm-hmm. I actually got sober kind of before we wrapped it and I stopped drinking and, and this scene resonated with me in a, in a real way when, even when I was writing it, um, it, you know, on a much smaller scale, I'm not going to compare myself to what Stephen King was going through when he wrote the shining, but you know, this, this seven minutes is some of the only stuff in this movie. That's purely mine mm-hmm. from the, the words. It's I'm not pulling from any source. And um, there's a lot here about an internal conversation about drinking and what it could do and where I was in my life at the time. And so I, I had a, an intense emotional reaction watching this because I was on the brink of finally getting sober and I, I didn't really even know it yet. Um, but I did right after, uh, it was, Ewan is heartbreaking in this. Yeah. And, um, and he's childlike. I was just thinking about that. It's like he, he, he's reverting back to, you know, being a kid at that moment, being scolded by his father. Yeah. It's incredible. Look at that set. Yeah. (laughs) God damn. Um, it's another one we walked in. I remember the night before they were hand painting those red diamonds on the floor. Mm. And uh, we didn't get this one quite right. The The fixtures, the sinks, um, we couldn't find them. We couldn't find the the real ones. And so everything's a little off. Um, and this was just one where I think they felt on the studio level that we'd kind of overstayed our welcome with Jack and that people were still scrutinizing Henry here. Hmm. instead of kind of going along for the ride with Jack. There's a neat thing, you know, Kubrick breaks the 180 line in his version of this scene um, where it appears the actors have kind of switched places. And if you watch, our actors do switch places. So we didn't just break the 180 line. Yeah. In in edits, we had them switch marks. They're on different sides of the room at the beginning and the end of hmm. the conversation. Um, and that's all just a riff on... Kubrick's famous and willful kind of, you know, breaking of the, of, of the 180 rule. Um, but right there they've switched, they've completely physically switched places. You only get a couple of really good looks at Henry Thomas's Jack in that scene. And I love that the, you're either seeing him in profile, but then there's like a couple of like what, maybe three quarter shots where it's him facing Danny across the bar. And I love that in that bathroom sequence uh, that, there's an opportunity there for you to show him a little bit more in that, in that reflection, but you blur it out. You know, it's, it's, um, the focus is, is off on it. And he really looks like Jack as a result of that in that moment. You Mm -hmm. know, I got to show, um, this is going to be as name droppy a story as I've ever told in my life. I got to show Steven Spielberg a picture of Henry as Jack coming up the stairs when we recreated yeah. the bat scene. Um, and because, uh, you know, Spielberg and Henry go so far back, of course. Sure. But he was, he, he, it was before the movie was finished and we were meeting about haunting season two. And 
he was asking me a bunch of questions because he knew Kubrick, of course, and, and, you know, he had done his own shining tribute in Ready Player One and he right. just was full of questions about Dr. Sleep. And I finally kind of was like, how are you handling, you know, you're not bringing Jack back. And I was like, we, well, we are. <laughs> he was like, we tried to get, Nic- he tried to get Nicholson to do Ready Player One and Nicholson passed. Right. And he was like, did you get Jack? And I was like, no, you're not going to believe it. It's, it's Henry. And he's like, what do you mean it's Henry? And I was like, it's Henry <laughs> Thomas. And he's like, no, it's not. That's ridiculous. <laughs> and, and I showed him a picture of Henry in, in makeup in wardrobe going up the stairs. And he was like, son of a bitch. Like, he's like, if you, if you glance at it and you, you yeah. just take it in, like, yeah, he looks, he looks Jack-like. And I never would have believed it. I'm alarmed to hear that he wanted Jack back for Ready Player One. Like, what in God's name <laughs> would he have been doing in that movie? I I didn't have the balls to ask, but um, well, it for sure would have been like a performance capture thing. Yeah, oh, but. so these I I want to talk about this bloody elevator shot, please. Yeah. So Kubrick's camera is on the floor, looking up, and right. we're up looking down. So he is the child POV. We have the adult POV, mm. and ours is entirely digital. The whole thing. Is, is a digital simulation based on the original footage. Hmm. I never would have guessed um, that. No, it looks and weird. it's the one shot in the whole movie. Um, I would take it out. Really? Why? Yep. The studio is like, you have, if you're doing the overlook, you have to do the blood. And my whole argument was, I have no idea why that happens. Mm. Like, I don't know what the hotel is doing. To kind of be like, hey, Rose, the hat, look at this. You know, and she's just like, oh, I love the shining. Like, it's really <laughs> I, I get it. Yeah. But but her reaction to it not being scared about it is what makes it work, though. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. with her going, ooh, this is an interesting thing. I like you know, this place. Yeah. Yeah. Because we, we did like the idea that like if if it liked Dan, little Danny as a meal, you know, right. it would love Rose the Hat. Right. Uh, and um and so this was it. This is the only time we got these three actors in one room and we shot it toward the end of the, of the thing. And it took four days to shoot this whole sequence. Um, one of my, my, Oh, uh, this hedge maze scene was not in the original script and not in the original movie. Mm. Um, after the test screenings, they wanted one more big shining set piece. And so this was a, a, uh, this was a pickups we did months after the fact at the studio's request. Hmm. And we built the hedge maze on the Warner lot in LA and had Rebecca and Kylie come back to do this. This is another one where, um, I'm very surprised to hear that. Yeah. This was never part of the movie. This was Warner brothers wanted to do this. And, and the, the thing the, I think the thinking was that there was never a moment in the, in the Colorado lounge where Rose and Abra squared off. Mm. Abra ran away and Dan held right. off Rose. And then there was the Dan and Abra fight after, but Abra and Rose never went toe to toe. And so they wanted that. And we, we whipped this together after the fact. I'm impressed. That's actually a very good note. <laughs> yeah. Because note. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. I, that's why I'm so surprised to hear that it wasn't in there. Well, and now I love it. it. We built, you know, I loved being in the, um, in the hedge maze. I have footage. My, my son came and visited. He's uh, 10 years old. Oh, he's nine years old at the time. And he's running through the maze and Rebecca is chasing him. And I have that footage. I, we ran around. He doesn't understand what it means, but I thought it was really a, a, a trip. Um, and yeah, we, and we, 
we we shot it in LA over one day and then we put it in the movie and and uh, I think it's great. I think it fits here really nicely, but it, it made no real difference, you know, as far as it didn't it didn't do for for the performance of the movie what I think they wanted it to, but it certainly mm. gave that moment of having these two characters square off. Yeah, it works for the it works for the story and you get uh you you get kind of a good payoff of um the cunning of, of, uh, Abra and Dan's plan of, you know, yeah. of capturing her, uh, within one of his mind boxes, you know, I like the point that she makes that they're not, that Abra very much could grow up to be Rose. Right. And, uh, I, that was a, a point we didn't really get to explore in the previous, in, in the actual version of it. So this, this is an addition. I'm, I'm happy that we got. So those shots earlier, where you were cutting to the box opening within the maze. Those weren't that's in there a, either. Those shots were there. That's a different maze. So those shots are entirely digital. Even the maze. No shit. Well, yep, then what's the payoff? To, like to me, this is the payoff of the whole box concept. No, uh, there you saw them when he's uh, on the floor and he springs them open to release the right. ghosts. So that, yeah. that all happened. Oh, okay. But this, you know, thing of the box, sneaking up on her Mm -hmm. you know it's all additive um like i'm very happy we got it uh but yeah by this point i think rebecca had already started shooting dune and (laughs) um and she came back to warner's to to do this and wait seriously i think so or she had been cast i know we were talking Mm. about dune while she while Mm. we were there for the day she might have started production by then um just very briefly have you seen dune I have. I love Dune. Yes. Um, and, and she's my favorite part of it. And I'm not just saying that. No, she's so fucking uh, she's good in it. She's so good in it. Um, I, thought it was, I thought it was breathtaking, that, that movie. I, I can't wait for the next one. Um, I'm glad they're getting one. Yeah. And then the, the lockbox <laughs> gag. Um, it's kind of funny, the box gag. The way it's it just is. like creeping up in the, it's almost like a Monty Python bit or <laughs> no, something. It's, it's, it's Bugs Bunny tiptoeing. <laughs> yeah. Right? Right? And that, yeah. That was like, that was something else to me I thought might not work, but you know, it works well enough. But initially, you know, none of that happened. She just, they, they fucked with her head and she slammed her hands down and it went right into this hmm. with Abra running away. So this, you know, we, we tried to do exactly Kubrick's shots here. Um, to mimic the approach and everything going up the stairs, which is a big continuity thing he did. He, he framed um, uh, Jack and, and Wendy in the dead center of the stairs and you know, moved them over to make the better shot. We, we did the same. All those, I got, all those photos on the wall. Yeah. What are those? Are they repeated? Is it like the same 12 photos scattered around or did you find like dozens no, they're, of they're all unique. They're, they don't match, you know, a lot of them we couldn't match to, to the original, but um, we tried at least to match the idea. You see like Rebecca's dead center, Ewan's way left here, Ewan's dead center, mm-hmm. Rebecca's way right. Like, and no one never calls bullshit on it. They did it on Kubrick <laughs> and it works here. There's Rebecca doing her Nicholson hands up. Like they mm-hmm. were just, both of them were just giddily trying to, to ape that scene. And so were we. Um, and Ewan really liked being kind of in the Shelley Duvall posture. Yeah. And Rebecca mm-hmm. just, you know, ate it up. Um, 
the stunt here is, uh, I think, a record. It was uh, the the largest free fall without a net um, oh. for the stunt man who gets launched right. Uh, ooh, right that wound. Yep, right there. That that one into the rail. Um, huh. That was apparently a record-setting stunt, and I remember that everybody went ballistic at the time in the stunt department. They were all so proud of him. <laughs> what is he on um, wires? No, the, the stunt man just was on a platform that launched him. And he just took the fall. God damn. Yeah. <laughs> that is that is no tricks. He just he flew halfway down the flight of stairs and rolled into the railing. We only did it once. And yet um, no stunt category at the Oscars. It, isn't that absurd? I it think is. that's gross. It's crazy. Yeah. That's that's that, that is a disgusting oversight from the Academy, I think. That it you can't defend it. Um there's been so much outcry for that too. It's it's wild to me that they haven't just done it. Yeah, I don't get it. The only reason I can think of is they don't want to make the goddamn thing longer. But I I, well, I think it's an exciting yeah. category. You know, I think that yeah. that's something people would want to to see. Yep. You know, I I, I think you're totally right. Um, and that's you know, one more Oscar fucking Fury Road could have made. So yeah, no kidding. Well, so many movies that, I mean, because it's hard to do that shit. It's really hard. Yeah. Like, it's it's art, and it's people's lives are in danger. Um, this is some of our, our biggest direct quotations from The sure. Shining. They're always fun to do. Um, and then this was the area where I think the studio was the most worried. Um because we didn't want to do anything. I think they wanted ghostbusters. They wanted the ghosts to be digitally enhanced. Hmm. And we wanted the ghosts to be exactly as they were in the Kubrick dimension, which was just there. Yeah. You know? Um, so we ended up splitting the baby. They have, uh, they have kind of ghosty white eyes, which Mm -hmm. Kubrick never did. Um, later used in Dune. (laughs) Uh, we, that was our, up some info. Oh, and I love this effect of them pulling her face. But, yeah, um, yeah, sliding under the skin like that is so great. Uh, we wanted this to be as you know horrible as possible for her. I remember Rebecca, she had 20 people like piled on her. <laughs> um, two of them are the stars of my one of my favorite independent uh, horror movies. They look like people. Um, invited them in there. McLeod Andrews. Uh, there he is mm. on the left there. Um, and we, I just love the movie, so we, we invited them in to be... Overlooky ghosts. I have a question. Why isn't the blowjob dog man in here? (laughs) My 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 big answer to that is he is. He's just below frame. (laughs) Okay, but seriously, why isn't he? (laughs) Um, we we debated that so hard over the course of prep. I was afraid, like (laughs) that it would look. I was afraid that it's just like that. It's hilarious. It's hilarious, and um. As inexplicable as it is in the context of The Shining. And, and like he has his like his bare ass exposed through the back of it. Uh-huh. And I was just like, there's no way we can really pull off the blowjob bear guy without just making it all about a blowjob bear. For is a it a bear or, or a dog? Or dog. Um, I, I don't know. I can't I think it's a dog given the tongue, but I don't know. I I think um, I would have had him like crawling on all fours in there, which that maybe been great. coming down the stairs 
you know, joining as long the as the camera's them. behind him and you get that full ass. I shot. would have maybe lost the ass, but like you know, uh, I understand what you mean by like suddenly there's a guy in a fucking dog costume there. It would be like what, and then you're just thinking about the blowjob, you know. Yep. But but I, I I do think that I I wish he was in there being creepy. Yeah, we probably could have. We probably could have pulled it off. Well, you're gonna we, have to remake we, we, it. We. We blinked on that one. I'm afraid we 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 chickened <laughs> out on on him. It, the blowjob was just a little <laughs> little too much to wrap our head around. Uh, here's another one where like the gap under the door is unreasonably high. Uh, that you know, there's no <laughs> yeah. reason for it to look like that, except yeah. that we needed to understand that he passed the room. Like yeah, that d- looks like saloon doors. Do. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh, and then stuff like this was just. I mean. How fucking lucky am I? I got to, I, I got to like be there on the day this happened, you know. Um, be there, you're in control of it, baby. Yeah, I, but there, it's just so many people made well, this happen. Fair, you know, like it's it's. Um, they are then, there like, because watching, of you, though. Directly, this isn't even they, in the book. Yeah, and they 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 would not let me forget that. <laughs> it got really bad. <laughs> Uh, it's like you know why we're all fucking here, right? Um, it's all your fault. This was a joy to you know the dialogue here is lifted directly from the Shining novel, right? And um, this was you know we got to watch them do do King's Shining ending, and um, it, this was the kind of stuff where I felt like regardless of how the film would perform, we got to put the and this is you and actually doing Jack. Like Ewan was mm-hmm. playing with Nicholson mannerisms and trying to kind of, kind of get in there. Um, there's our, you know, our whip pan with the ax. That's just mm-hmm. Ewan's self control that he didn't hit her in the head with the ax. Um, I assume it's rubber. It is rubber. Yep, it's a stunt ax. I have that hanging, uh, hanging in my uh, my little home theater. God damn it! I'm gonna fucking yeah. rob your house, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Telling you now. Um, and when the and when you discover it, just blame it on Bespy. Oh, <laughs> it's always my fault. Um, but this was some of the, some of Ewan's favorite stuff, and and by this point, you know, we'd been shooting in the Overlook for I think a week and a half to get here, and just loving every minute. This was the day when when press came, so the people you know who were there, they sat. We sat in this room to do most of the the meet and greets, and and it was right before we shot this stuff. So we, we flew the press out of this room and then flew him in to do the scene. Mm. Um, I still hate them for, yeah. for, for, for getting to go. Um, don't they know that I love Stephen King stuff? I don't know. I have to write an angry letter. We tried so hard to explain how the hotel blew up, uh, like realistically. Yeah. For, uh, and we never could. Hmm. Um, like it could catch fire. But to like to do the damage it does from the one boiler, we bent over backwards to make it work, and the best we came up with was a a diesel fuel leak. Yeah, that would ignite. But even that, it's like this has been sitting there for forty years. Yeah, like, it still wouldn't. It wouldn't have the capability yeah. of. Yep, um, and it's concrete walls. You can tell. So right. the you know, it's a stretch that King made in the book, and Kubrick's set design just it was like this doesn't make any sense. But we went with it. It's the it's you know it's it's the uh, the gas tank the air tank in in uh, in Jaws. It's like right. by now, fuck it, <laughs> you know. Yeah. 
uh, the it blows up because we say so. Um, yeah. And uh, this, uh, oh man, I love Ewan's work here where he finally just puts the whole thing down. Yeah. Um, and uh, this trick shot we did all in camera where we we're on you and we pan to SO and then we pan back to, to little Roger uh, who played young Dan. It's all, all, all practical. Ewan's there. Alex holds her hand. As soon as he broke frame, he ran away. Alex froze and tried not to acknowledge with her eyes. And then we flew the kid in into his place and hmm. um, just choreographed it as best we could. And, this uh, King said this was the image that really um, that grabbed him hmm. when he saw it was Danny and, and little Danny, uh, little Danny and, and, and Wendy together in the fire and not, not afraid. Right. Um, gorgeous, gorgeous shot. Yeah. Look at that. The, Fucking hell. We, we burned down the overlook. <laughs> um, had to do uh, it to yeah. him. Had to do it. That was uh, the last shot of the movie that we filmed. No shit. Right. Yeah, that one right there is the last thing we filmed for the movie. Uh, and then we wrapped and everybody went out onto the snow and hugged and cried and <laughs> sent it away. Um, I'm curious that, look, the studio was well behind this movie. Yeah, you, they really You were. know you made yeah. a great movie. We know you made a great movie. I'm curious, it, it, why do you think it didn't perform? You know, I, I, I asked myself that a lot. The, I, I have theories. I, I think it was released too late. I think it, hmm. they put it out in November instead of in October. I think it would have made a difference. I mm-hmm. do. Um, I think the marketing leaned a ton on The Shining and not on this being its own film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that would have made a big difference as well because I think most of the younger audience doesn't know The Shining. And um, for better or worse, they... they we're kind of like, what, what, what is this movie? Right. Uh, and I think, you know, ultimately, we made a character-forward, supernatural, cross-genre epic, the likes of which Hollywood hasn't really made since the 70s. Mm-hmm. And we put it out in a contemporary marketplace that is so not on the wavelength of, of this kind of storytelling in general. Totally. And, um, you know, it, and it didn't catch on. I, what's interesting to me though, because Stephen King called me, uh, Monday after opening and and said, you know, take heart because he remembered very well when Shawshank bombed and when the shining bombed and Mm -hmm. when the stand bombed, uh, not the stand uh, and stand by me bombed. And, and he remembered all of the, those moments. And then watching as the years went on, as the, the films found their audiences, and we saw it happen in real time when the thing hit HBO Max mm. and it popped like the, the performance on streaming when the movie came out on HBO Max for the first time was really good. And people were discovering it and people were in particular passing around the director's cut, which is perfect uh, for bingeable kind of long form home viewing. Right. But, you know, you can't put a three-hour movie out unless it's Avengers Endgame. So, like, mm. um, which, but a movie I adore, but we we are not that movie. And um, why isn't it still on HBO Max? I thought it was, you know, when we, today, well, as we're recording this, I looked it up 
there this morning. I thought it was, I thought that's where it was. It was for a while. It's, it's come and gone, I think twice on there. Hmm. And it was, uh, it, I think it moved to Netflix. It was on Netflix in Canada, at least a few weeks ago. And I, I checked. So it bounces around as, as they negotiate with however they negotiate streaming rights. Oh, I see. But, I ended up just um, buying it through uh, Prime. <laughs> I, I bought it on iTunes and I bought like five copies of it on, on uh, 4K when it came out. I wish they would have <laughs> done the, you know, the director's cut on 4K. But right. yeah. Um, but yeah, it, this movie to me, I love it. I loved making it. It, it was a joy to work on. I, I still pinch myself that it happened at all. Um, the studio was unreasonably supportive creatively. Like I, none of these stars would ever line up again for this experience. And, um, that it didn't, you know, perform the way they wanted to is a disappointment, but I wouldn't change a frame of the movie, except I'd take out the elevator shot. um but uh because it's just it's just it's it's nostalgia service that's the one fair one where i'm like we didn't need to do that we only did it to be like right remember this um, yeah that's the only time we did that though or at least knowingly did that and i i would pull it but i um you know i i i will always be incredibly proud of the movie i love hearing from people who find it and and I've also had a lot of conversations with um, people in recovery uh, to mm-hmm. whom the movie means something very profound. And uh, now that I'm sober, I'm three years sober now, and it's been all over my work. Looking back through my career, it's hard to deny it. You know, it was always something I was chewing on. Mm-hmm. But this, this was the turning point for me. And um, this really gave me a lot of confidence and, and courage to, to commit to it. And by sheer coincidence, a year after I, I stopped drinking, I emailed Stephen King and I said, hey, it's my one year sobriety birthday. And I'm just, I've never discussed this with you, but I'm, I'm writing to thank you because between your chapters about alcoholism and on writing um, and the experience of adapting your book about sobriety, which is Dr. Sleep, into a movie, um, that's what made me turn the corner and today's one year, so thank you. And he wrote back, and said, thanks so much, man. Uh, hey, funny coincidence. Today's my uh, birthday, too. Um, no was, shit. Uh, yep. And it was uh, 30 years for him. Hmm. And uh, What are the, the fucking same... odds of that? Yeah. Uh, it, total fucking coincidence. And we have the same sobriety day. And just by, by sheer fucking coincidence. And I found it out a year after the fact, after the movie was all done, just because I finally had the guts to acknowledge it to him. Hmm. And, um, it's, it's a crazy little bit of trivia. What is the, can I ask you the date or too personal? No, no, it's not too personal. Um, it's October 18th. Right on. It's, it's actually also the same day that the Haunting Hill House launched the, the, uh, so that hotel scene that I, that I (laughs) referenced. Um, yeah, like that day, I, I will remember that day for the rest of my life. And I remember we shot all day and we did the hotel Dan Abra stuff. The show came out that night and I decided to stop drinking. Hmm. Wow. And um, so that day changed my life in a lot of ways because the haunting of Hill house absolutely, you know, changed reality Mm -hmm. for me um, when it, when it landed and uh, there's before that show and after that show for my career. Um, But, but for my life, there's before that day and after that day. And, and um, 
and that it's also Stephen King's day is just fucking bonkers. Yeah, that and is so, nuts. Yeah. You call um, it a coincidence? I call it Ka. It's Ka. And, uh, <laughs> it really, yeah, it, it's spooky. Is what, it, it's, it's spooky. And, and, you know, I'm an atheist. Uh, but every now and then, um, <laughs> every now and then that gets directly challenged. And, and uh, <laughs> it's something spooky like that happens. But, right. um, but yeah, it's, uh, it, I'm really thrilled that you guys took the time to like, I'm really, I haven't watched this version of the movie since we finished it. So like, this has been a real trip for me anyway, just to see it. And, and I, I finish it and I still look at it and I, and I am grinning and it's like, yeah, we fucking did that. Like <laughs> who in the world decided it was a good idea to let us do that. And then <laughs> like, and to then put it out in this form, like to then also be like, and like, let's just make sure that your favorite version of it is also out there for the masses. Mm-hmm. Like that's fucking insane. And I owe Warner brothers so much for being willing to do that. Um, you know, I, if I pitched this movie today, I wouldn't, I wouldn't get past the first, the first script read. I would have turned it in and they would have laughed me out of the office. Mm-hmm. My three hour, <laughs> three hour <laughs> doctor sleep, but it, it was the right time. And, and shit, we got, we got to do this. I'll never, I'll never get to do it again, but well, man, you, hope, you killed it. Yeah. You should be extremely proud of it. Um, I think, uh, as a, a final question here, I think I'll probably get in trouble. Um, uh, both Eric and I will, if we don't ask you this, um, no shit. I, I don't think I've ever seen that. Yeah. They, uh, so Warner brothers has a policy that they do not do this. You're not allowed to put a thank you note and they, uh, they broke it for me here. Um, mm-hmm. because, uh, I really wanted to acknowledge the people who, who made the cut possible. That's awesome. Um, well, here's, yeah. here's my question. When are we going to see you do another Stephen King thing? <laughs> oh man. Um, you got ideas like, you know, obviously you may have ideas you don't want to talk about, which is fine. Yes. But within the realm of what you can or cannot say, you know, um, this isn't the last time we're going to see you wade into the world of King, right? Not at all. Not okay. at all. No, there, there's, uh, there's absolutely stuff very, very deep in the works. That's very exciting. Um, mm-hmm. I can't talk about it yet, but, uh, staying in business with, with Steve and, and getting to play in that sandbox again is, is a huge priority for me mm-hmm. and will always be a huge priority for me. So I, I hope I'm never too far away from the next Stephen King thing as long as he'll have me. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I have one right now that, that we're well down the path on. Um, that will be very exciting. I just, I'm not allowed to, to say anything about it yet, but very soon we'll be able to talk about it, but it's, it's, it's in the, it's in the oven. We're working on it. Excellent to hear. Yeah, you've heard it hear. here first. Sometimes they come back again. <laughs> again. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I want to beat, you know, the record. I think Mick, Mick's done nine. Mm. I think is what he's at nine adaptations, Mick Garris. Um, so I, I want to, I'm chasing them and I'm, I'm, I'm still in the, you know, I think I've done as many as Reiner and I'm one behind uh, Darabont. So I'm, mm. I'm really like, I really want to get into the, into the upper level club there. So yeah. Yeah. You yeah. can't let that, that shit stand, man. You gotta, gotta put those fools in their place. <laughs> those genius fools, <laughs> those genius <laughs> masterminds. I just want to be in the club, but, um, 
Well, yeah. that, well, thank yeah. you so much for being here. This was a, a delight and an honor to be able to do this with you and put it out into the world. Uh, hopefully, people are going to enjoy it as much as we enjoyed recording it. I hope so. Uh, but thank you guys so much, and and thanks for the chance to revisit uh, revisit this really cool period of my life. It's really cool. <laughs>